picture's fucking badass. Everything about that's badass. I mean, Lord of the Pit's like the original badass, but it's so fucking obvious, you know? Right, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, get it while the getting's good, I suppose, while you have... Yeah, it started happening. Everybody's doing this shit now. You notice that? Yeah, I haven't, but I just assumed that it would start happening. There'd be a lot more. It's kind of like the Warriors or something. Like, there's like, you know, there's like, he's like, everyone's going to start coming in like costumes and like, they'll be like, you know, like, or like the Tims, you know, kind of like how we were talking earlier. Like, everyone comes in with like ber pink berets on like small white dude that's so good that's so good yeah like the, like like oh man the tims are here man uh oh like <laughs> i feel like with 93 94 there's like even if you're kind of joking around about being the tims like you still have like serious passion about being the tims like oh seriously you're the fucking tims yeah you dress up as tim yeah. you're the tims like, we are the tims and like this is serious like ping you Welcome to the Magic Tutorial, where those unfamiliar with the game of magic are initiated into its mysterious ways. Magic is a game of cards, which hold within them mighty spells and powers undreamt of on the mortal plane. You access these mighty magics by building decks of cards, carefully selecting a balance of creatures, lands, spells, and artifacts that will work together to vanquish your wizardly opponents. The ways of magic are complex, and it will take some time to learn the game's many subtleties. But heed what we say, you will soon be trading spells with the masters. And so, we begin. Welcome to Tusk Talk, episode number 19. We have on a very special guest today. Uh, we're talking about a very special topic as well. We're talking about 93-94 magic, uh, also known as old school magic. And we have on Danny Friedman today to talk about the subject with us. Danny, how are you doing today? Real well. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. I'm excited about this episode. I'm happy to talk 93-94 and... Uh, I think you will provide some great insight on the topic uh, today with me. So, super stoked about this. So, yeah, let's uh, let's cut into it. So, yeah, Danny, uh, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to the listeners? We have some people that aren't totally familiar with ninety three, ninety four. Uh, a lot of the listeners maybe are more interested in legacy, maybe vintage uh, mix. Uh, so, it's a good opportunity to talk about ninety three, ninety four, introduce people, and then also kind of talk with people that are veterans as well. So uh, yeah, so take it away. Great, well, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm Danny Friedman, uh, I live in Chicago, Illinois. I've been playing 93, 94 since, I guess early 2014, I guess, but we, I didn't really start getting active in 93, 94 until later in that year. Um, and I guess the way that I found out about it, I, I found uh, Magnus's blog, the Old School Magic blog, probably in 2011 or 2012. And it seemed pretty exciting to me. Um, and he had started in Sweden uh, testing playing decks from uh, uh, comprised of 1993 and 1994 cards. No reprints past uh, Unlimited for core set stuff and uh, Stopping at the Dark. 
No Fallen Empires, No Revised. And it was just kind of a cool idea, you know, it, uh, it really excited me just because this vision into magic from the past that, that I remember as a kid, playing with a lot of cards that I never owned at the time, but uh, people I knew owned them. And it just really excited me. And uh, so I'd read the blog and, and kind of passed it off and said, okay, this is a cool thing, but, you know, I would never find anyone to do this with. At the time, I was living in Oakland, California and playing vintage uh, pretty actively. And Steve Menendian also lived out in California, um, very close to me probably less than, a, less than a mile away, I'd imagine. And uh, he brought up 93, 94 to me, and we started talking about it, and he was really excited about it. I remember him comparing uh, James A. Tome to, to Jace the Mind Sculptor. I would say probably in the maybe early 2013, I started aggressively buying alpha cards because in my head, I just assumed that eventually these cards would become unaffordably expensive because of the low print run. And if we ever got into a point where we could actually play old school magic, I want to have alpha cards because it's the original set. Only set with round corners. It's, it's It was the real deal in my mind. So started buying alpha cards aggressively. And then in, I think, 2014, yeah, I think it's probably 2014, um, Bay Area Tournament, uh, Steve set up, and it was sometime in May. And I was planning on playing a old school deck in that first 2014 old school event. And I ended up moving to Chicago and deciding that in probably late April. So I planned on playing in this event uh, during May, but I couldn't play in it because I was in the process of moving. And uh, and so I never actually got to play in an event. So then I moved to Chicago. My friend uh, Jason Jaco lives in Chicago and longtime vintage player. Uh, has been playing Magic since, you know, 94, I think, maybe 93. Owns all the old stuff. And him and I started playing uh, a couple times a week at my place. Occasionally, we went to card shops, uh, occasionally played at, at different bars. And this was just something him and I would do because we didn't know anyone else who was doing that. Eventually, we started playing more regularly in a card shop, and other people started noticing what we were doing. And I can only imagine it looked pretty jarring to just you know walk over to a table and you see some mocks and a Lotus, and that's already crazy enough. And then you expect people are playing vintage, and people ask, you know, oh, you guys playing vintage? And the response was, no, we're playing old school magic. And then people start watching, and they and they see these cards that they would not expect to see with Black Lotus, like Hypnotic Spectre and Sarah Angel. This got people pretty excited around us, and and people who often did not have any interest in even vintage seemed to have an interest in old school magic. The more we played, the more people watched, uh, the more people we got involved, and then people just started buying cards. And when they asked about you know what was legal. Originally, uh, we were all just playing whatever we had. So, you know, if uh, if I didn't own a uh, Alpha Beta Unlimited copy of some card, but I had the revised version, you know, we just play it, whatever, because, you know, this was not a tournament setting. This was just something for fun. But as time went on, you know, more people got interested. They would say, you know, what's legal? And Jacob and I were talking about this at one point, and I think it was before Eternal Weekend uh, 2014, which was uh, the first old school that happened at Eternal Weekend. We were trying to decide... You know, what were reasonable things to make legal? This this was kind of a, a joined effort, and, and we both were talking about this, and what we came upon was, as long as it had the original artwork, as long as it had the original card frame, and as long as it was non-foil, you know, for example, that would include anything from, you know, an alpha sword to plowshares up to, you know, like a time spiral disenchant. Because in reality, that looks pretty old school. Even if it's a time spiral card that, you know, is printed, you know, way later, at the end of the day, that's far more old school looking than any foil. It's far more old school looking than anything with a new border. And of course, foils didn't exist at the time. So that was a pretty obvious thing to not include. The other cool thing that this happens to include, if you use that guide, 
is it also includes collector's edition and international collector's edition, which blows the available pool of cards wide open because power became you know, accessible at that point. You know, cards like Force Field are not that expensive when you were looking at collector's edition ones. And at the time, you know, this was 2014, these cards were not expensive. Now, at this point, I think we probably contributed to making all these cards really expensive. And if you look for, you know, collector's edition cards, um, you'll notice they're not as cheap as they used to be. I mean, like a Black Lotus at this point is like 400 bucks and Chaos Orb is like 80, 90 bucks, something like that. So I'm sure we contributed to that, which is pretty unfortunate, but uh, this was really out of making this more accessible and and more fun, you know, and, and allowed us to have people to play with. And that, that led into us getting a local community. We had a tournament at uh, the 2014 Eternal Weekend with 12 people. And then the next year it was, what, 50, 60 something players, somewhere around there. And then last year, I think it was over a hundred people registered and I think 80 something ended up showing up. So it's, it's really grown. Chicago scene has a, has a very large field, it seems like. I mean, as far as the United States, there seems to be these kind of strongholds of 93, 94 players. And traditionally, people kind of look towards the East Coast heavily, but it, it seems like there's a, there's a lot of eyes on Chicago as well, which is very cool. And in Atlanta, we're kind of in the same situation where, you know, we have a couple guys, low DCI men and jo John Malkovich. They actually play 93, 94 during our legacy events, John Malkovich actually misses the first round of our legacy every week uh, due to work. And more so wants to play 93, 94 while he's there. Sometimes he'll just not play around because someone's interested in playing 93, 94 with him and he'll every time take that up. Um, low DCI man registers for legacy, but does not play legacy. Uh, <laughs> just because he wants to contribute to the store, plays uh, 9394 just waits, kind of watches Legacy, waits for one of us to free up, and then catches a game. He'll do that during the whole event every week. That's insane. Um, you, you know, what's, it, what's crazy about this, this seems to be a pretty common theme. So the store that we started playing at started because they had weekly uh, Thursday Night Legacy. And so we would go and play before Thursday Night Legacy, and sometimes it wouldn't fire, so we just end up playing, you know, all night and other people would watch. Other times we'd be playing and we'd be having so much fun playing 93, 94 that people playing 93, 94 would not play Legacy. As time went on, I remember the Legacy event firing less and less. And oftentimes people would be playing old school and opt to not play Legacy because they were playing old school. I guess it was kind of cannibalizing Legacy, but... Uh... You want to talk about Lords of the Pit at all? I know you guys have uh, a group out there in Chicago. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Lords of the Pit is uh, is our, I guess our, our MTG, old school MTG club gang. We got big black silk screen patches with a stylized Lord of the Pit logo on it, and uh, they're on all these, you know, like denim jackets and, and black vests, like motorcycle vests, you know, often containing gun pockets, which hilariously often fit deck boxes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, yeah. and uh, this idea came out of it, it came out of nowhere. Um, if I remember correctly, Dominic Daughter, which is a uh, one of the original uh, Chicago old school guys, he now lives in California. He was staying at my place because he came up for an event because uh, that's how much he likes old school magic. I don't, you know, I I, I don't want to steal credit for this because I'm I'm not sure where it came from. 
it was it was a combination of him and I, but it could have been mostly him. Uh, we were just sitting in my house talking about, you know, how, you know, we should have a legit club like a biker gang. And this idea came up and I immediately start, you know, fucking around in Photoshop with a with a demonic tutor. And I'm like, well, we should do something with this because, uh, you know, Satan and uh, pentagrams, that's that seems uh, that seems reasonable. Right. And. Uh, and then we started, you know, making this thing, and we and we originally wanted to call ourselves the Stone Throwing Devils because I thought that was really, oh, really funny. Good. And uh, yeah, I thought it was way better. I think I still think it's probably better than Lords of the Pit. Um, and we kicked this around in this group chat that we had on Facebook, and a bunch of people had issues with it. Um, Some controversy surrounds the set in the form of cards like Army of Allah, Jihad and stone-throwing devils, an oft-used derogatory term. Which is really funny because I, I did some research on this. So there is, there's some debate if that was a racist reference. But the funniest thing about that was the only actual data that I could find about this was that people called, somebody at some point in 1990, what is it, 1994, whenever Arabian Nights came out, called out the card as, as having a racist reference. And in looking into it, Richard Garfield's response was he couldn't find anything that, that related to this being a racist reference. But because that interaction happened, now, you know, 20 years later, there was some sort of idea that this might be a racist reference, all coming from somebody bringing up the same idea, you know, 20 years before with, with no credence whatsoever, which is totally stupid. But, um, so that made me pretty mad. But anyways, uh, we settled on something else that we found to be acceptable and uh, I mean, Lord of the Pits is as badass as it gets as far as old school magic goes. So I didn't have that much of a problem with it, but Stone Throwing Devils was the original. Yeah, the art's so metal on Lord of the Pit. It's unbelievable. And it, he's, got a, he's got a fucking sign. It's, it's ridiculous. He's got an emblem in the upper right-hand corner. Like, I don't know if there's any other card that has something like that on it, you know? So, so I suppose, you know, aside from like pentagrams and shit like that, but... Um, Lenore Elves has some interesting design around it. It's like a glyph, you know? It looks it looks like something that you'd like, like this is like a cave painting transcription almost, you know? It definitely adds to the medieval kind of tone to the card. I think that's something that's actually really cool about all these old magic cards. When you when you compare the art, like one, the, the, the complexity is way lower in the old cards, and that is also partially due to the fact that they're all hand-drawn. Mostly hand-drawn, not all of them. It, it gives to this like mystique that the cards have, and I've shown magic cards to people who don't play magic. And when they look at these old cards compared to the new ones, the, the first comment they have about the old cards, they think that they look older than 1993, 1994. That's, yeah. that's the impression that it gives people. And I think it's, it's everything about it. It's like the poor typesetting, the, the really simplistic, mediocre artwork. The level of simplicity is so high that it almost has this medieval look to it in just in just the stylization of the artwork like like Doug Schuler artwork is he has no backgrounds in anything like it, it really like there's something that makes it look so so old and so arcane just just because of the lack of detail it's it's something pretty special and i think that's that creates a level of nostalgia as well it's not just that they're the original magic cards but it's that they they look so ridiculous yeah you know like a, like an alpha mox pearl looks like it's literally from like the time when they created the light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> Just like one of like the oldest looking things I've ever seen. Like you could put that card into an antique shop and it would fit perfectly. Like a lot of that old art kind of has that kind of folk art feel to it. Almost like an art movement that kind of came and went. You can't, it's very difficult to find artwork that's similar to that. Like for reference art or whatnot, you have to look to like 
monster manuals and like AD&D and D&D books from the past. And there's only like a window that's shorter than a decade, it seems like, that really pushed this art out. They kind of had that very arcane feel, a little bit of like untrained folk art that really added to that aged feel, look, texture. And then you also, like one of the big pluses I've always kind of felt like with the older cards is that they offer a lot more imagination where a lot of the new cards are almost trapped in, in kind of this this spoon-fed story that's, that's given to you where you don't really get to use your imagination to kind of like see a picture outside of the art that's on the card where like now it's kind of like, you know, everything just kind of looks like a screen capture from a video game. Like you could just buy a video game, pause it, take a screen capture, put it on a, a new board or card, and it pretty much looks like a magic card. Whereas a lot of this older stuff, it's it's really hard to replicate, find something similar and or it feels more personal because you have that imagination to add to the aesthetic. I've bought a lot of D&D books of like, you know, even like I guess like Duelist and Scry too are good sources for that sort of art. But in general, I found it pretty difficult to find good reference art that has that same style. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's 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 pretty crazy too the range because because you start talking about like this level of imagination. So you go from things that are completely unimaginative but still feel old like Candelabra of Thanos to cards like Time Twister or Time Vault. Like, I think anytime, you know, Mark Mark Tieden's more complex artwork, you know, there's, there's cards like Sol Ring out there, but there are also cards like, yeah, Time Vault. It's totally insane when you look at that card. And I, or, or like Time Walk, that's another one. It's a, I mean, I think time is an interesting reoccurring theme because between like, you know, Amy Weber and, and Mark Tieden, you get some really weird imaginative artwork. And, and again, like totally, like you said, folk art, you know, or, or like the Foglios, just... True, um... Uh, Tucker. Drew, Drew Tucker. Sorry, yeah. Drew Tucker and like his more like abstract approach uh, to magic, where it's just like, that's a very key artist, I think, to that kind of mysterious and imagination. Whereas like you'd look at his art and you like Holy Light, for instance, is almost like it's like you're in a dream or something. Like you just, you can't pinpoint exactly what's going on. And it's like Clockwork Beast. Like it's almost like you just woke up from a dream and you're trying to remember what you saw. Like, you're, you're totally right. right. You go into these other artists that are very descriptive in their style. Like, Tiedon has, like, a lot of texture to his art, you know, and, and, and some interesting detail that, you, you know, and then you have, like, Folio, which is more of, like, a cartoonist almost uh, and brings, like, humor to it, you know, which, you know, brings a nice contrast to something that's, you know, a lot more serious. And then you have things that almost look like a heavy metal cover, you know, like Lord of the Pit. So it's it's it really offered a lot of different routes to kind of catering the build of your deck and what you liked. Like it just offered a lot, a lots of different tastes and individuals. Like before you had almost an art gallery, you know, Jesus, my four is basically picked all these artists that had such a different style. And like you said, the folios versus Tiden versus Weber versus Anson. Like you get these styles that are kind of conducted in the same bubble of this kind of, mysterious folk art, very hands-on approach, but everything is is contained in this same spectrum. And, and I give a lot of credit to Jesus My Force for that. Where now it's kind of just like <laughs> they take it they take artists that have similar styles to their style guide. And I think they're also kind of pushing these artists. Uh, so you have kind of this one cohesive look, which I think in turn kind of cuts out a lot of the imagination. Yeah, yeah I agree. It really captures something special. Yeah. So 
So yeah, um, so you so with playing a lot of ninety three, ninety four, do you have a deck that you kind of move towards or gravitate towards? Like, yeah, I, you know. So this is this is interesting because this it's similar to how I feel about other formats. And when I say other formats, I really only mean vintage because I don't really play anything else aside. I barely play vintage at this point. It's mostly like old schools just consumed me when it comes to magic because it's it's new and exciting to me in this way that like even shaking up the the band of restricted list doesn't even do for me for vintage but um so it's interesting and and so when it came to vintage i was always of the the four mana drain mindset you know i i loved there was nothing i loved more than casting like a card like factor fiction or or gifts ungiven and so you just imagine that you know I, i'd probably gravitate towards something like the deck in old school which I mean, early on, that was I was really glued to that that idea of you know playing all these counter spells and, and draw spells. I think there's a problem with with that deck, the deck in in old school, which is, in my opinion, it's not interesting at all. It's in my opinion clearly the best deck in a field of people piloting that deck. Uh, you should see many copies of it make it to the top eight if you had a very large tournament. And old school, I think, is less about winning and more about having fun and more about style points. And for me as a player, you know, playing as much old school as I do, which comparatively I think is more than almost everybody I can think of just because we do it all the time. And so many people have such small communities, whereas, you know, we, this is just something we do multiple times a week. You know, there there were two different old school meetups between, you know, Friday and yesterday, you know, that, that, that each got like, eight eight people you know or it's just crazy to think that so so when you have that much uh that much going into it every you know every every couple days or you know a couple times a week playing a a deck like the deck it shows a lack of creativity and it shows you're not into anybody having any real fun and uh so i think in environments where you have a, a bunch of people who own a bunch of fancy old expensive cards that don't play old school very much Whenever there's an old school event, what does everybody bring out? The deck, because they don't actually play very much old school magic. And I think if you look at, at the last Eternal Weekend, you see a lot of that showing up. People love control, but because those people don't play very much old school magic. Because if you played a lot of old school magic, you wouldn't think that was very cool. And I don't. So that's a very long explanation of why I don't play the deck that often. That said, I, I you know we'll get into this in a bit. I, I played something that's very closely resembled the deck. I think maybe maybe you could call it a variant um, at a couple big events, but um, has my brand of spice on it. But anyways, my favorite deck would probably be some sort of I, I like I like combo decks, um, and I also really like prison decks. Which is funny because I don't like Prison and Vintage. Hmm. I used to play exclusively Prison and Vintage. Uh, my favorite deck ever, and it was the first Vintage deck that I really devoted all of my like monetary resources towards, uh, was uh, Five Color Uba Stacks because I thought the interaction of Goblin Welder, Uba Mask, and uh, Bizarre Bag that was just totally insane. And that was cool. It did weird things, you know. It played cards like Balance, played cards like Tinker. It was really interesting and. Uh, I stopped playing workshops when they printed Lodestone Golem because I thought it took everything that was interesting about stacks decks completely out. And even after that card has been restricted, I think that prison archetype or the the aggro prison archetype uh, within Vintage is completely uninteresting. But when it comes to old school, I think it's very interesting because there's some really weird, get all these cool prison cards. And and something that I actually wanted to write an article about on on my blog um, at some point because it's just odd to me how many prison cards exist. You know, you got cards like Moat, you got cards like Nether Void, you got cards like Drop of Honey, 
you've got all these crazy artifacts like Icy Manipulator, Relic Barrier, Howling Mine, uh, Ankh of Mishra, even Rod of Ruin. It, it, the list goes on and on. Like I, I started making a list of everything that I would call like a prison prison card or a prison card enabler, and I came up with like 40-some cards in, in, in a period of a few minutes. Um, you know, Stasis, the, the list goes on. Winter Orb, you know, so it's a... Uh, so I think prison in old school is pretty interesting because there's so many different directions you can go on with it. And uh, so I think prison in old school is really fun. Um, it's not fun for your opponent, of course, but I do think it's rather fair because most of the time the prison decks lose to like one card. You know, they often just flat up lose to Tranquility or Shatterstorm or Energy Flux. It's far more fair than in Vintage where you can literally, well, before Chalice got restricted and before Lodestone got restricted, you could literally drop... A chalice, a bunch of moxen, chalice for zero, and a turn one lodestone. And if your opponent didn't have force of will, they definitely just lose that game. It, it doesn't work like that in old school. You don't have any good ways to win with your prison decks for the most part, other than really bad cards like Black Vice, the Hive, or, or you know, Mishra's Factory, or something like that. These are not great win conditions. And and the, the deck still just loses these like insane one ofs that are castable because there there's no chalice, and you know that's. There's no sphere of resistance. So I think prison is is a cool archetype in old school because it's not just it's flat up unfair. It is not fun to play against, but I think it's very easy to beat. And that is very satisfying for the opponent of the prison deck, which is very important. You know, you've got to have fun when you're playing old school. And even if somebody brings prison, there has to be some level of fun. And and the level of fun is watching the prison deck draw horribly and you just smoking them in your in your board games with with cards like Tranquility or Shatterstorm. Like even with things like power, the level of actual power that the card have is a lot less than vintage. So much less. You know, like the like getting out something fast in ninety-three, ninety-four and, and like using a lotus to do that, and it like just gets swords or disenchanted. It's harder to put up defense with things like force of will and chalice and stuff in, in vintage than it is in ninety-three ninety-four. So you can you can get fast, but someone can answer it and there isn't total lockout from answering that totally i think there's only one real power play and, and the only power play that i can think of is something to the tune of lotus land mox and time twister before your opponents had a turn that's about the most broken thing you can do on the first turn everything else is is just like you said it's like land lotus juice them then your opponent goes you know turn one swords like they're so they could drop a turn one icy manipulator and you're taking one for the rest of the game. It's it's just the answers in old school are so much better than the threats, which is, I think, why these prison decks are actually viable. But it, it, again, it's totally fair. Uh, a card that you don't see very much that I don't understand why you don't see very much is Damping Field. Uh, this guy, Dan Picard, played it on me uh, locally once. You, you want to lose really hard when you're playing a prison deck relying on uh, artifacts? Yeah, just watch your opponent play Damping Field. You just flat up lose to that card. The format is wider than, than people think it is. And I think one of the keys to making it as wide as it can possibly be, stop bringing blue-red burn to events. Stop bringing the deck to events. Play something cool. Play something with Berserk in it. Play something with Sinkhole in it. You know, spice it up a little bit. And, and I think once people start doing that, you start seeing some interesting variants. So anyways, I, I've really, I've, I've derailed this. Your question was, what's my favorite deck? So what I've been playing a lot recently has been a, a, a turbo a chaos orb control deck. It's, it, it looks like a lame control deck on the outside and you say, oh, this looks just like the deck, but you know, and, and it is in a lot of ways. It plays, you know, four counterspelled mana drain, plays two power sinks, 
and two spell blast. Oddly enough, spell blast is often significantly better than power sync in this deck, aside from against X spells. But most of the time, it's actually better from what I, from from my data. But what makes this deck interesting is it's straight blue-black and has no real main deck removal. It plays uh, two transmute artifacts and a reconstruction and has a transmute toolbox. So it's it's loaded with one-ofs. It's got one of Icy Manipulator, one of Nivinural's Disc, uh, obviously uh, one of Chaos Orb because the main combination of this deck is four Guardian Beasts uh, along with Chaos Orb. You know, it's got all these weird one-ofs and... It's kind of just this funny deck that that presents a level of control and uh, eventually ends the game by blowing up every permanent that the the opponent has and winning with either it's got three Dekmetrius factories, it's also got a Jade statue. You can also easily win with Guardian Beasts because, of course, when you have like three Guardian Beasts, you can definitely attack with two of them. It plays a main deck Time Elemental because uh, I needed a recurring removal. Yeah. And uh, Time Elemental has actually been totally insane because when you play nine counter spells, bouncing something every turn just means that permanent base threats are not scary. So you basically just counter all, you know, you counter swords, you counter, you know, uh, disenchant if you don't have your guardian beast out. And then you just sit there bouncing something of your opponents every turn you, and, you know, you take control like that. So, it, you know, and I think the deck seems really lame to play against because it just seems like a like a control deck. But um, you compare this some, to something like the deck, it's not playing any swords to plowshares. It's not playing any disenchant. It's not playing shatters. You have no main deck real one-for-one removal aside from Chaos Orb and wasting your Chaos Orb randomly early game is terrible for you because you then have to recur it with recall time twister or reconstruction it's it's not optimal to just waste your chaos orb in that deck before you get a guardian beast out so it's a very it feels like a very fair deck to play against because there's just so many ways to disrupt it and and something like the deck is not fun to play against because it's just got too many answers this i think is a fair amount of answers because the answers aren't that good you can't answer permanence normally once they come into play other than the few cards i brought up chaos orb interaction just for those that aren't familiar you know, you pay one to destroy Chaos Orb, and then you flip it, obviously, and whatever it touches, destroyed in Eternal Central Rules, you target the card, and then flip, and then when it hits, then it's destroyed. Guardian Beast out, as long as it's untapped, it's protecting your Chaos Orb. So basically, you have one mana blow-up target non-land permanent. Uh, this deck plays four copy artifacts as well. So uh, another one of another one of the ways to make this deck really crazy is copying your Chaos Orbs when you get a Guardian Beast in play. Or use copy artifact as insurance so that you can keep two Chaos Orbs just out sitting there. And so that if somebody blows one up, you still have a copy for when you get your Guardian Beast in play. Yeah, I guess it protects you from Mind Twist to having it out. One thing I was thinking about too is just, you know, with things like Vintage and Legacy, et cetera, is, you know, having those cards, you know, like mentioned Chalice, but also targeted discard is not really available. There's Word of Command, I guess somewhat similar in a way, but outside of that, it's, it's another place where the game is kind of a little more balanced as far as just completely attritioning your opponent out or landing a quick threat. Exactly. So so that's been one deck I've really liked recently. Um, finally completed my playset of Nether Voids recently. Oh, wow. And I put together, yeah, it's a really exciting moment. Um, had a lot of fun with these prison decks. And uh, prior to getting my set of Nether Voids, I had tested out a white, blue, black version of uh, Nether Vortex e- uh, Land Equilibrium, um, which uh, Heiner Litz did a really nice write-up of a mono blue version on Eternal Central. And uh, for those of you not familiar, Nether Vortex is a uh, blue enchantment, costs blue, blue colorless. And uh, when you play it, the caster must sacrifice a land immediately when it's played. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I think it says is destroyed. I don't think 
it's probably errata to sacrifice. And then it says, uh, during each player's upkeep, that player sacrifices a land he or she controls. When there are no more lands in play, sacrifice Nether Vortex. So one interesting thing to note, if you cast Nether Vortex and at some point have no lands in play, but your opponent has lands in play, it stays out until there are no lands in play, period, on both sides of the table. Land Equilibrium is a pretty funny enchantment. It costs blue, blue, uh, two colorless. If your opponent controls at least as much land as you do, he or she must sacrifice a land for each land he or she puts into play. So the interesting interaction here is that when when if there is a land equilibrium out and a mana vortex out, eventually when you, the controller of both of these enchantments, ends up with zero lands in play, once your opponent well, actually, immediately, your opponent cannot play uh, any more lands <laughs> because they have to sacrifice them as they play them. This is this is a huge problem because basically you end up in a situation where where your opponent can play no lands. So as long as you, the controller of land equilibrium, play no more lands, your opponent will never have another land in play for the rest of the game uh, unless they blow up uh, land equilibrium somehow off artifact-based mana, which is pretty broken. So I... So I made a, a a version of this deck. The reason to run black is specifically for the Abyss. Mm. Uh, if I had owned Tabernacle of Pendril Veil, that is a much better solution because you don't have to go into black and play a four-cost enchantment. Because as you can probably imagine, in a deck where you're losing all of your own lands, playing a four-cost enchantment is it's not exactly easy. Uh, the upside is it's three colorless and one black rather than double black, something like a, you know Nether Void. So it was... Uh, and, and then the white in this deck was was for, you know, the common spells like uh, swords and disenchant. And obviously balance being probably the most busted thing in here because you don't play any creatures. And the way that this deck would win, win one of two ways. It could win with Felden's Cane just by decking your opponent. It could also win with Black Vice. And and that that was a pretty fun deck. But when I, when I got the Nether Voids, I built a deck without any land equilibriums and just played Mana Vortex Nether Void. And that's a very funny combo because it just ends up with a very similar situation. While your opponent can play lands, they can't actually cast any spells unless they want to have them countered because they cost, you know, another three colorless. That deck all comes down to having one very pivotal turn in which your opponent is has overcommitted, is likely tapped out with, with something in play, and what you do is you then you drop another void, and that's generally how the game ends. This This deck cannot play Black Vice because Nether Void actually counterspells, so people can play into the Black Vice. That is a very important distinction here. The way that this deck wins is entirely off of Felden's Cane, which is really hilarious because all of your games go to time. It's a completely terrible experience for you, the player, and your opponent. And it's pretty funny when you win, you know, your matches, you know, 1-0 with a deck like this because you couldn't fit any other games in. But yeah, it was, it was a... A moderately entertaining deck. I had a good time with it. Similar to Turbo Fog, far as uh, yeah, yeah, having the cane to kind of survive through and deck out your opponent. Exactly. So um, the way that you would deck deck your opponent out with a deck like this is you're playing Howling Mines. Uh, while most old school decks that play Howling Mine also play Relic Barrier, this deck actually only ran one Relic Barrier. It ran three Icy Manipulator and three Copy Artifact. So one theme that I've been playing with a lot lately is just you know between two and three copy artifacts that card is just so broken it's a it's a enchantment that costs a blue and a colorless and it comes into play as a copy uh, an exact copy of an artifact in play an artifact card in play 
and it card it specifically card is an important thing to pay attention to here for examples of cards like Mishra's Factory. So if you have a Mishra's Factory that's activated and you play a, a copy artifact, when copy artifact comes into play, you get to choose and you can choose Mishra's Factory and it becomes a land. That's Very sweet. interesting. It's a perfect copy of Mishra's Factory. Um, the one thing that it, it does retain is I believe it's still a blue card and it's still an enchantment. So your uh, copy of Mishra's Factory, even if it's not activated, should be able to be disenchanted. Yes, uh, uh, 10-4, 2004, the copy is both an artifact and an enchantment. So it is an artifact enchantment, perhaps even an artifact creature enchantment. In the case of Mishra's Factory, it is a land enchantment. 10-4, uh, the copy of the artifact is not still blue. It copies the color of the thing it is copying. So I'm incorrect. So when people blown me out with red elemental blast on the existing permanent, that was incorrect. It is not blue. But it is still always an enchantment, which is a shame because people can always disenchant your Mishra's Factory. But a very interesting card nonetheless. And I think... I think it's one of the most broken, unrestricted cards available. So, like, the Mana Vortex Land Equilibrium deck was running three copies of this card. Uh, the Nether Void Mana Vortex deck was running three copies of this card. And it really allows your artifact toolbox to look very different. So, wh where I started talking about this was in my specific negation of multiple copies of Relic Barrier. Relic Barrier is not that versatile card. It only taps artifacts. So, it'll get your artifact creatures, it'll get Misha's factories that are attacking, it'll get Howling Mines, it'll get standard artifacts, Winter Orb, whatever. But unlike Icy Manipulator, it doesn't tap just anything. Icy Manipulator is totally insane, but of course it costs three, or sorry, it costs four. Very expensive artifact to cast. Copy artifacting one of those is just incredible value. Right. And, so, and, and the card is so much better from a control standpoint because when you're not playing white, so you don't have the option to sword your opponent's creatures, being able to copy and have multiple... Icy Manipulators in play is extremely strong. So, and also because Nether Void, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Nether Void is not, it is a enchant world. Very important thing, it is an enchant world. You cannot play the Abyss in this deck. Yeah. So you have no way to deal with creatures because you're not playing white. So you have to really, you have to really bone up on these uh, Icy Manipulators. Yeah, the nice thing about playing those enchant worlds too is you can use them as removal. Absolutely. The core and Crossroads is really great for that because it can be a one green mana, destroy the Abyss, or Nether Void, etc. Totally broken. It's totally broken for that. One, one, one quick point I want to mention on too when you were talking about the copy artifact and Mishra's Factory, not to derail too hard, but just for our legacy listeners to kind of understanding some of these old interactions and applying them to new or... There's a cool card called Song of the Dryads. The Legacy Players, two colorless, one green, and it's uh, Enchanted Permanent. And Enchanted Permanent is a colorless forest land. Now, you can do that and cast it on a Planeswalker like Jace. And then you can use your Thespian Stage and copy that forest. And now you have a Jace with your Thespian Stage. Interesting technology. Uh, that applies to modern day that kind of uses a similar interaction with the land. That's actually really cool. Are people really doing that right now? Uh, I have done it. I play uh, Turbo Depth sometime, and when this card come out, I was playing it as uh, another piece of removal, mainly for like Blood Moon, because it was similar that I'd get a green mana. Kind of to start out, knowing I was playing against the Moon deck, I'd fetch for like a basic forest typically, and Abrupt Decay was a lot harder to cast, so I'd cut down to three and had like one of these in my main or two in my sideboard at a certain point. And uh, yeah, that interaction did it, and it worked out. Totally legit. You can you can definitely do that. Yeah, that's awesome. But anyways, not to derail. Just thought it was no, no. You're good. That's little. that's really cool. So um, so yeah, I really was looking for better ways to brew with copy artifact that were more interesting. And uh, you know, I played this 
you know, land equilibrium, mana vortex deck. And I was like, well, this is cool, but it seems pretty obvious. But I really, really liked mana vortex. And I also, I'm not a huge fan of playing strip mine. So most of my uh, compatriots over here are all about the, the four strip mine decks. Not, not all of them. I, I, you know, Shane Simmons hates the four strip mine. He does, he almost never plays it. I've seen him playing a lot of decks with zero. I also play a lot of decks with zero strip mine. Cause my feeling on strip mine is strip mine goes in these, uh, very aggressive, uh, very linear, low to the ground mana curve type decks with with lots of aggressive plays and and lots of aggressive permanence. Strip mine seems pretty mediocre in a deck that kind of just builds and builds and builds. And why play a card like strip mine when you can play a card like mana vortex, which is like ten strip mines, and it also doesn't cast mana vortex. You want well, it casts the one colorless off it, but that's a double blue spell. You don't want to waste all these spots in your deck with colorless lands. And when you have the option of playing four workshops, four strip mines, and four factories in a multicolored deck, even in monocolored decks, you have to make conscious choices about how many colorless lands you want to play. Oh yeah, there's library in there too. And so most of the decks that I run that can harness all the cards just mentioned, all these lands, what I find in the prison decks that, that are heavy on these artifacts that are multicolored decks, it's generally anywhere from one to three workshops, zero strip mines, because you have some recurring effect in your deck that does it over and over again. You know, whether it be, you know, recurring chaos orb or, you know, mana vortex or, you know, something like that, or land equilibrium, something like that. So that's kind of where I've, where I started building from. It was, you know, again, this is really interesting prison strategies. Uh, this, this is not tier one. This is just more like exploratory, having fun. And that's what I see old school being all about. Like explore interesting strategies, do what, do what people could do back in 1993 and 1994, explore these weird cards because you don't necessarily have, back then they didn't necessarily have all the answers and, and know what the best decks were. It was, it was really very, it was a time of discovery in, in a big way. And, and right now, like we, we already know what's best. That's not interesting to play. Yeah, the internet really changed all kind of cultures and the exchange of information, which really changed kind of that age of discovery, kind of uh, omitted with the overbearing kind of stretch of the internet as a whole. I think it really impacted magic across all formats. Completely agree with you. It's, it's weird to think that people net deck old school, but they absolutely do. It's it, you see it all the time. You know, it's a. Uh, I've seen so many decks that just like lack any shred of creativity, and it's just kind of like, well, you're not playing this to make money because your deck is worth more than any winnings for any tournament, even if the tournament offers money. So if you're not playing this to make money, are you playing this just to win? Because you're looking just to win. They're they're much more effective formats to do that in. You know, where where most of the players have the same mentality. You know, it, we're we're not. You know, shooting fish in a barrel doesn't seem very fun or interesting to me. But I guess that gets some people off. I think. I think what's cool about 93-94 is you got this interesting community, you're playing these nostalgic cool cards, and like style points rule the game, I think. And and I'd rather see somebody, you know, bring something totally insane, like like at a NoobCon, somebody's playing a Prodigal Sorcerer Living Plane deck. And uh, for those of you not uh, familiar with those cards, Living Plane is a green enchantment that turns all lands into 1-1 one, one creatures, and Prodigal Sorcerer... Uh, Often referred to as Tim. Yeah. I have psionic blast ready, so yep, he is definitely gonna suffer. Oh yes, Tim. Hello, my dear friend. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Tim. Tim. Two colors and a blue. Yeah, Tim. Two colors and a blue. Uh, it is a 1-1. One, one. I believe it's a 1-1, one, one, right? Yeah. And uh, taps to activate and uh, deals one damage to target creature or player. So you can do targeted land destruction with Prodigal Sorcerer if Living Plane is in play. Like, totally interesting and cool. Clearly not a Tier 1 strategy because both those cards are super expensive. And by the time you get them both out, the best thing you can do is destroy an individual land. It's not like you're winning the game immediately. So your opponent pretty much has to be doing nothing uh, at the time where this comes out. Otherwise, they, they're probably on their well on their way to killing you. That's not the point. Winning the game is not the point here. It's I had this insane interaction that I've never seen happen in Magic, and look what I just did. And that's really that's that's what draws me to this. I think it draws a lot of the people in my group to this, and uh, and that's what's cool about old school Magic. Did he play uh, Tim's ship at all? Also known as Pirate Ship. Yes. Oh man, Pirate. I don't know if he played Pirate Ship, but if he did, th this is somebody at NoobCon. I don't I don't know the guy, so it, it'd be great to figure out who this was. I, I know um, I went to NoobCon, and uh, that's the. 93-94 uh, International World Tournament uh, held in Gothenburg, Sweden. I went with my friend Shane, uh, Shane Simmons from Lords of the Pit from Chicago. He was the one who told me about this deck. He might know if there was a pirate ship in there, but, um, but that's badass. You know, it's just... The, there's nothing cooler than some big, expensive, shitty creature that's like Super Tim. And that's also, you know, a creature that happens to be, you know, pirate ship. I think it says summon ship on it. I think they'd change it to like a, I don't know, a spirit or something stupid like that. Pirate. You know, which totally, is it really? Yeah, human pirate. That's awful. That's awful. It should be summon ship, you know? Yeah, ship.deck. You got ghost ship, you got pirate ship. You could you could have the ship tribal. Skeleton ship. That's extra style points right there. So yeah, like the there's cool stuff out there. Uh, one deck I really wanted to highlight now that I'm thinking about it for style points. So James Torque is one of the guys that plays old school with us in Chicago, one of the Lords of the Pit. And he's from central Wisconsin, little little town. And he brought this really badass deck. And I think I must have been the only person he beat. I was playing Guardian Beast combo deck and I won the match, but he, he like won game one or game two, something like that. Um, if I remember correctly, it was a mono red deck uh, that was using mana barbs, red enchantment, three colors and a red. Whenever a player taps land for mana, mana barbs deals one damage to that player. Keep in mind, this is a ABU rare. This is a very expensive card to buy if you buy it in the original printing, which is hilarious because the card's terrible. He was playing this and Power Surge. Power Surge is another really funny card, another uh, red enchantment. Power Surge. Enchantment, red, red. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, Power Surge deals X damage to that player where X is the number of untapped lands he or she controlled at the beginning of this turn. Another interesting thing about this deck is it was running Candelabra of Thanos to untap your opponent's lands to hurt them with Power Surge. Wow. Totally insane, right? He was, he was playing, uh, he was playing um, Artifact Disruption. I believe it was Mono Red. He was playing Blood Moons. And this interaction with uh, Candelabra was actually very relevant. I think he walked away from the tournament totally uh, totally down in his deck because he did not do very well for the day. Uh, I think he immediately sold two, uh, two Candelabras to Shane. But nonetheless, I think this was the coolest thing in the room. And uh, and this is exactly what Old School is all about, I think. This was more of like, a, I think we all drove up to Milwaukee, which is like an hour and a half from Chicago, hour and a half north. And we all like met at this public market um, downtown and, and we all were just you know drinking beer and, and eating awesome local food and and just jamming games we're not playing a legitimate tournament but this was cl clearly the coolest thing that anybody brought 
I saw some cool decks. There was nothing this cool. I mean, Jaco brought something crazy with uh, Hazazan Tamar and uh, and Caracas. You know, there was some cool shit out there that day. You know, definitely lots of style going on. But I mean, come on, Power Surge and Candelabra, completely insane. And this says, keep in mind, Power Surge, at the beginning of each player's upkeep, Power Surge deals X damage to that player for untapped lands here she controls. So you'd have to actually tap these lands in response to this. And the problem is we also play with Mana Burn. So... Right, right. This card actually worked pretty well. And for those of you not familiar with Mana Burn, Mana Burn is a is a thing that Wizards got rid of what 2008, something like that. Yeah, whenever they I think they did that at the same time that they nixed Gush and Merchant Scroll and Ponder and all that stuff and Brainstorm made a lot of people quit vintage, but uh I think it was right at that same time. But yeah, Mana Burn was this thing that basically if you had mana in your mana pool that was unspent at the end of that uh, phase of the turn, you took damage for each mana unspent. This was a very relevant thing in Vintage because you could easily burn from Misha's workshops, not being able to use all the mana, but use some of it. You could easily burn off Mana Drain. You could easily burn off uh, Talarian Academy. It's one of the reasons that uh, Mishra's factory is so good in our old school environment because it, it's a way to avoid mana burn. Right. So long as it's not mana that can only be spent on artifacts or something like that. So you, so you guys have a 93-94 kind of Chicago Invitational that you guys run fairly consistently, it seems. Yeah, so um, basically run tournaments. We try to do them about once a month. And they're always, uh, the entry is a donation to a, a specific uh, nonprofit or, or cause that we, we all think is, you know, a reasonable just cause. You know, like something, you know, for, you know, animal shelters or something like that or, you know giving kids, uh, you know, underprivileged kids school supplies, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. N nothing too, nothing too controversial because there's a lot of differing opinions, of course, amongst amongst the group. But um, so the, the entry is generally some sort of uh, donation like that. And then you also bring a card, a playable 9394 card. Um, uh, everybody who's in the tournament signs the cards and we actually uh, draft the cards by uh, end placement. So basically if you win the tournament, you get the first pick, so on and so forth. And sometimes we do a card that's, you know, a custom altered card for the event because uh, the wife of one of our players, Matt, um, and Matt's wife is this amazing altarist. And I don't think she'd ever done altars until very recently. Like she was just doodling around uh, from what it sounds like and, and she just amazing um does really great work she's been making a bunch of these first place prize cards and like you know, she she made a cool uh strip mine with lord of the pit on it that we gave to uh kala in sweden um who helped shane and i out he put us up he he's amazing one of the nicest people you'll ever meet if you get the chance to meet him you know she made a card for him um, and she makes all these cards for first place that she's been doing lately like so we do these chicago invitationals that's what the prizes look like what we normally do is we do swiss plus one with no top eight or top four the only time we do a top eight or top four is if it's at all disputable who the winner is so like for example if the tournament ends 6-0 and then you know spot number two is 5-1 there's no need to do any any cut to top four or top eight because the winner's the winner's obvious here. And and then the only time we really do that is, you know, if, if like, you know, the top three players have the same record, you know, winning winning or losing an event based on breakers is, is pretty lame. And, and occasionally we've ended events without doing a top four or top eight when that's been the case just due to time restraints. But for the most part, we don't do the top four and top eight just because we want to play more magic. So we'd rather have everybody playing every round. So Swiss plus one's been pretty good for us. We've even done like Swiss plus two before. It's it's been pretty fun. So uh, so we do those, you know, about once a month. Uh, we do them often at local establishments. Uh, 
Jayco also has a uh, an industrial space where we set up tables before, and, and he's hosted them um, very graciously. Very nice of him. And uh, he did a cocktail menu at the last one. You know, he provided all these amazing ingredients. People people always bring beer to these, and it's you know it's a very a community oriented type event. These are you know it's really a, I, I think this is how magic was intended to be played. It wasn't you know it wasn't you know multi hundred or even thousand player GPS. It wasn't you know you know, with huge tables and super long all day events where people get burnt out and hyper competitive atmospheres like the magic was originally, you know, just a, a side thing that people did, you know, and in, in between rounds at Gen Con of, of D and D, you know, and, and this is exactly like that. These, these events are not serious. And oftentimes by the end of the event, some of the people doing the best are like unintelligibly drunk. And it's amazing that they've done so well in general. Like it's, it's just, it's kind of silly. I, I think uh, Eternal Weekend uh, 2016 was a great example of uh, <laughs> you don't have to be the most sober player to win the event. Yeah, as a hometown hero. Unmistakable vape. Taxman. Dude, he's amazing. I played against him. And he could not get to our match on time. He couldn't find me. He couldn't find the table. Uh, he, he, had, he had trouble ordering uh, drinks and, and talking to the waitress. He didn't make any incorrect plays. He made a lot of, like, like people think of White Weenie. This is Daniel Humphreys we're talking about. Unmistakable vape. Uh, people think White Weenie is a no-skill, just play everything in your hand deck. He made a bunch of specific skill plays uh, around cards like Strip Mine, around cards like Armageddon, around uh, Acacian Javelineers. Like, he played so tightly. I would not want to diminish the quality of the play that this guy was was performing because he was so drunk. And despite that, just like he beat me in two games and it wasn't even close. <laughs> and it wasn't because of his crazy draws either. It was he played the deck right. And it's really awesome to see White Weenie win that event because I would have been I would have been pretty bummed out if some like, you know, mediocre control deck, which is basically what I was playing, um, would have won. I think, you know, I played against you actually yeah. at the event. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that game three was crazy. I remember there was some, some fun top decks. That was a good game. Yeah, so I don't know. It's really cool. Like, like I don't know, Magic 93-94 just gets me real excited about Magic because you can talk about these ridiculous things that happen involving weird cards, inebriated people, occasionally clever plays, and amazingly weird builds. You don't get that in other formats. Every other format's optimized. It's in a competitive play environment. There's no drinking. When I see my opponent make like a, a clear mistake, I've often told them like, hey, you know, you can rewind that. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I do that every time, but you know, it's it, it's often, I would say often the environment is is pretty casual and pretty lenient and and that's what makes this fun in a way that competitive magic ju is just not fun like that. It's fun in totally different ways. It's fun in building your quality uh, as a competitive magic player. It's fun in in learning how to be that great player, but it is not it's not like having a beer with your friends and that's exactly what 93 94 is all about totally agree with that so so let's jump into uh noobcon yes yeah yeah so um yeah so i'll talk about noobcon a little bit so uh yeah as i mentioned earlier noobcon is uh the world 93 94 championships in gothenburg sweden which is where this was first devised uh they play with their own original this is this is they're they're, they're the original they play with their own original um Banner restricted list. Uh, it includes core sets up through unlimited, so revised is not legal, uh, and then sets up through the dark, so fallen empires is also not legal. Interestingly enough, summer magic is legal, which came after that. 
and after revise. But that's basically that's one of those like pimp style points. So yeah, so that's that's their deal. So uh, it's a little more exclusive because you need to have uh, unlimited or older dual lands if you want to play duels. Uh, no CE power, so a little more exclusive. That said. They always have more people who want to play than the amount of available seats. And the amount of available seats is decided by the venue. And they expanded it this year. And there were people sitting on like beer kegs and benches and all right. sorts of odd makeshift seating. So they expanded the uh, entry to 102 players this year. And it had previously been capped at 75. I believe it's invite only now because of, of the level of interest. And it gets people from all over Europe. And uh, so I was sent uh, some invites from, from Magnus, which was really nice of him. And, and I, I came with uh, my friend Shane, who I mentioned earlier, uh, another Lord of the Pit. Shane's a real badass. So um, side note on Shane, when I first met Shane, he owned no Power 9. He was primarily an EDH and Legacy player. He started buying Power 9 for Vintage, but quickly really pivoted towards old school. I mean, he plays Vintage a lot now, more than I do at this point. Um, but, you know, it's he's he's always picking up weird cards like Alpha Navinural's disc. So uh, clearly his interests are are heavily centered on old school. And it's crazy to think that there are people out there who have bought into power specifically to play an unsanctioned kitchen table type format. And he's largely one of these people. Uh, Dominic uh, Daughter is one of these people as well. You know, I, I don't think I've ever seen him play a game of vintage in his life and he is fully powered right now. So uh, yeah, hats off to those guys. You know, it's some badass shit. So anyway, so Shane and I come down to Went out to Gothenburg. This is my second time doing this. And uh, the first time Kala Nord put me up uh, at his place, um, I never met him before. Uh, uh, Magnus Silaval, um put us in contact and nicest guy in the world. Having never met me before, put me up in his house, showed me around the city. You know, we cooked in, in his place a bunch to decrease the cost just because, you know, international travel is pretty expensive. And, uh, and so that, that's how I did it the first year. So the second year I contacted him and said, Hey, you know, um, uh, I am interested in coming. Um, would you be able to help me out again? And, uh, yeah, totally. Again, you know, he, he put me up again in a, in a, in an apartment actually that's associated with his apartment complex that, uh, tenants can rent out at a, a fairly inexpensive rate, which was amazing. So Shannon and I stayed there with him and he kind of was our tour guide again, you know, just took us around just nicest dude ever you know he doesn't owe us anything he had never met me before last year and you know drops everything he's doing to spend you know you know easter holiday weekend you know just showing these two americans around and uh yeah dude's amazing so played at noobcon which was 102 players uh i brought the deck that i brought to uh eternal weekend to this slightly updated it is it's very similar to the deck i would say it's a deck type archetype um and most of the reason I wanted to play this is I feel that this is the most optimized version of the deck. And I think it's really, really competitive. And, uh, and I wanted to try to do well in a large environment. You know, I, I knew that this event was, was bigger and I don't really have that many op opportunities to play such a large event. So I wanted to play something pretty optimized. What this deck features that makes it very different than, you know, a standard version of the deck that's either playing, you know, Sarah Angels or Mishra's Factories as the primary win conditions, then the suite of counter spells, disenchant swords, all that. This deck, is only playing uh, three Mishra's Factories rather than four. It is playing no creatures. It was playing no Fireball. It, uh, it also, the main win condition is uh, Millstones. And I really like Millstone because you activate it instant speed and it's also relatively inexpensive. You know, you compare it to cards like the Hive where you're paying uh, five to make one, one Wasp tokens. You're paying two to mill two cards off your opponent's deck. Very strong strategy. Uh, because you're playing no 
creatures. You can run main deck Abyss, which I ran two of. And I felt like this is a really strong deck for, uh, you know, for this type of field. I think in general, I think this is one of the best decks that somebody could play. Uh, it's not super interesting, I think, overall. It's, it's, it's too much like a standard, you know, deck style control deck, which is why, you know, it's not something that I... I don't sling this locally. I don't think it's very fun. But, so I brought it to this event, and to my dismay, I didn't play against the deck really at all. I played against I, I played against the deck once in the later rounds. I played against, uh, in seven rounds, I played against five different decks that are playing four copies of Underworld Dreams. Wow. That's all I played against was Underworld Dreams. It, it, it was unbelievable. I, I don't know what's going on there, but that's all I played against. If I had main deck Circle of Protection Black, it would have been better than like most of the cards in my deck, which was pretty obnoxious, honestly, because it was just it wasn't a very varied play experience, and and the 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 games of Magic I played all felt like the same game of Magic, which was pretty annoying. Interesting note: so round one I played against uh, Black White Underworld Dreams. I believe it had Hypnotic Specters, you know, Disenchance, and uh, maybe it didn't have Hypnotic Specters. It could have been Creatureless. I don't remember all the details, but Underworld Dreams was the primary card in this. This was not like standard Dead Guy L. There were no Jusums or anything like that, from what I remember. I report my results. Round two, they, they incorrectly mark my results, and I get the pair down for round two, but because it's so massive, and I only realized I got the pair down uh, when I meet my opponent, they said, play your match out anyways, we'll, we'll mark it correctly. That's really bad, because that worsens my tiebreakers, and I'm also playing a deck that's got a losing streak, so I'm probably playing a weird fringe deck. And of course I was. I was playing against Red Black, Underworld Dreams, once again, you know, with Stone Rains, Underworld Dreams, Blood Moons, just really obnoxious stuff. And uh, as somebody who loves prison decks and thinks, regardless of loving prison, prison decks, thinking that um, I think that Black Vice is a pretty mediocre card, he somehow gets turn one Black Vice in two of our games, and both of those are games where I did not get any opening power in my hand and, and seemingly take like 14 damage each one of like game one and game three to Black Vice, which should never happen. The card's not that good. But uh, nice guy, uh, Robert Schramm. You guys probably seen his name around. Um, so anyways, played against him, lost that round. I then I think I played against uh, Magnus on camera for a feature match and wrecked him specifically because of my two uh, sideboard circle protection blacks. And one thing that, that has come up before is, uh, you know, people locally ask me, why don't you just play Greater Realm of Preservation? And for those of you who don't know that card, Greater Realm of Preservation is much like a circle protection. It is a colorless and a white enchantment, but you activate it, I believe it's for a white and a colorless. Yep. Perfect, yeah. You activate for a white and a colorless to prevent damage from a red or black source. So it's kind of like a circle protection red and circle protection black, all one card, which is pretty amazing because of all the circle protections you would want to run, those are the two. Here's the problem with that. The red and black decks run land destruction, and they run stone rains, they run sinkholes. Oftentimes, if it's a red-black deck, they'll run both of them. Well, they're going to rid you of all your white sources. They'll also probably play, if they're playing red, and they're not playing a three or more color deck, they're probably playing Blood Moon. And if you're playing a deck like mine, which is running no basics, that's really bad to rely on white mana to protect you. So I specifically don't play that card. I just don't think it's playable, especially in the Chicago environment where people are running four strip mine. So you can play that along with other land destruction. It just makes the card even worse. So yeah, I do not play Greater Remel Preservation, and that really benefited me because there were so many games where I was down to off-color Moxon as my only mana producers because I'm playing against these uh, 
or, or lands that are now mountains because of Blood Moon. I'm playing against all these Blood Moon decks. I'm playing against all these land destruction decks. The card, yeah, the Circle of Protection just performed amazingly all day, both the red and the black one. So I beat Magnus uh, round three. I think I played against Stalin round four, and he was playing mono black, which is rare for him because he's, he's like a stasis guy. Um, but he was playing mono black. Once again, it came down to Circle of Protection black being the MVP. Um, if I remember the way that the game ended, I, I think I might have either killed him with a Brain Geyser because right. I've been milling him out all game, uh, I was also playing a main deck Tormod script specifically because I had to run Time Twister as recursion because the deck runs itself out very quickly because it draws a bunch of extra cards. And so I needed deck recursion, but I also wanted to not benefit my opponent because if I've been milling them all game, I don't want to play a Time Twister. So you have to play these uh, at least one Tormod script just to negate that. Now I could have played a card like Felden's Cane just to recycle, but... I wanted the the double benefit of getting a new hand. So that was what I played with. So I killed a bunch of people actually with Time Twister. You sit there and you, you hold back Mind Twist and you have your Tormod's Crypt out and the turn that you Time Twister them, you Mind Twist them first and then you kill their graveyard before playing Time Twister. They end up with a small hand and bad things can happen after that. So pretty right. funny. Sometimes with less than seven cards between hand and library when that happens. So Time Twister actually is what kills them, which is pretty funny. So yeah, I played against Stalin. I then played against Rug, which is one of my only non-Underworld uh, non Dreams matchups. And uh, we get to game three and he had boarded in one Tranquility, drew it at the exact perfect time and ended up blowing up an abyss and a circle of protection red and then all i drew was land after that and he kills me which that was a very like that was a nail biter match really cool and then i think the next round was played against the deck by icelander who ended up getting second in the event and uh this was another nail biter match uh he took game one i took game two we go to game three and i've got hardcore control of this game for quite a while uh off of my own jame day tome eventually i've got this hand of i think it had a power sink it had a red elemental blast in it some other cards, relatively large hand, you know, probably between five and seven cards. And I top deck Demonic Tutor for my turn. I'm looking at the board state and, you know, I'm, I'm heavily advantaged. I'm like, okay, well, this guy's got a hand and he hasn't been doing anything all game and I'm drawing more cards than him. And so I Demonic Tutor for Mind Twist. I know he's probably got Counterspell up. So I keep a Red Elemental Blast, which exactly taps me out if I have to use Red Elemental Blast. I Mind Twist his hand, he counters, I Blast, I pass. Of course, he top decks Mind Twist. Twist me. I draw nothing for the coming turns. Uh, he draws a disenchant. He blows up my tome, and, and that's game. Between those two losses and my second round loss against, you know, the luckiest black vices in the world, uh, that pretty much put me out of top eight contention. And then my last round again was against Mono Black, which uh, there it was, Underworld Dreams, and uh, Circle Protection Black winner card of the day. So, um, so that was my experience at NoobCon. Um, some weird cards my deck played. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, it was playing two millstones with uh, three copy artifacts. Uh, it was playing one Tormod's Crypt. It was playing one main deck Red Elemental Blast, which was terrible all day because I only played against two decks even playing any blue cards all day. And one of them being Rug, where the blue cards are, you know, very minimal and you're probably better served by boarding into blue Elemental Blast than keeping Reb in, in your deck. I played, uh, the other interesting one was Glasses of Urza. Yes. And Glasses of Urza, yeah, this card's really funny. Um, I'm not sure if Glasses of Urza is a great card or not, but I really like it. Uh, so Glasses of Urza is a one-cost uh, mono artifact, so it's a tap to activate 
type artifact. Tap, look at uh, target player's hand. It has no activation cost other than tapping it, and it costs only one to play. I opted for a card like this over a card like Disrupting Scepter, and here's the reasoning. So Disrupting Scepter, it costs, it's another mono artifact, costs three to cast, three to activate, forces your opponent to discard a card of his or her choice, and you can only activate it during your turn. So interestingly enough, it activates at instant speed during your turn. You can activate it during, you know, draw, you can activate it during upkeep, main phases, attack, whatever. But again, only during your turn. Another one of those weird templating issues that exists in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. But the problem with Disrupting Scepter, while it's really good as a control card and really good when you've maintained control of the game and, and empty your opponent's hand, it costs a lot to activate. And when you're talking about playing a deck with Millstone, so you're paying already two, if not more, because you have multiple millstones to activate, you know, during your opponent's end steps. And cards like Jame Tome, which again costs four to activate, paying three to activate a, a mono artifact during, and that you can only do during your turn, so before your opponent's done anything, it's not great. It's not great because you've got other areas for that mana to be used, and you're using it before you have the information from your opponent's turn. You cannot activate it at instant speed during their turn. Pretty mediocre. A card like Glass of Urza activates at instant speed, costs nothing to activate, and gives you knowledge about what you should be countering. And in a deck like this, that's playing more counter spells likely than your opponent. You know, with the main deck Reb, with a main deck Power Sync, with four counter spells with Mana Drain, Disenchant Swords. In response to most of what your opponents do, you look at their hand and you make educated choices about what you want to do. And so it, it kind of is a very, very similar card to Disrupting Scepter because it makes your own control much more valuable because you're making proper informed decisions. You tap to see what's in their hand, and you know exactly if you should be countering this, if you should not be countering this, if you should be using a card like Disenchant on the artifact versus a counter spell. I also have a miscut alpha one, so another good reason to play it. Style points there. Oh, for sure. But um, yeah, right? You know, yep. Miscut alpha shit's always pretty exciting. So um, The other big one with uh, Glasses of Urza, one of its key distinct powers, its ultimate advantage of putting your opponent on complete tilt by activating it over and over. <laughs> turn, especially like if you activate it after you've just seen their hand and they haven't drawn any new cards uh if you're ever playing like a super tryhard deck pilot just feeling a little too competitive just break out your glasses of urza and uh tap it down before any extra cards are drawn you are guaranteed a great tilt man you're totally right it, it's like force spike tilt when somebody knows it's even in your deck it bothers them yeah and, and force spike for those of you who don't know the card it is uh, a blue instant that costs one and counter target spell unless your opponent pays one colorless or the caster pays one colorless. Sorry. So <laughs> like days. Yeah, it's it's, it's the, the old school days. So the funny thing about uh, this card is when you're you know your opponent's playing it and they've got a blue mana up, you're always paranoid that your spell is going to get countered regardless of if they have it in hand or not. A really funny strategy around a card like that is maybe you play one of it in your main because the card's not that good. But right. as long as your opponent sees it in the first game and you board it out. They they play around it all that next game. So it's it's actually far more impactful game two out of your deck than it is in your deck because it's doing exactly what it needs to do. And uh Glass of Urza, that card being in play, or even in your deck sometimes with, with the right, you know, player that's you know gonna get tilted by that kind of thing, uh just yeah, totally puts your opponent on tilt. They cannot stand it. It's like activating top. Every end step, you look at your opponent's hand, it's just like you see this frown. <laughs> It is like top, man. Wow. Good one. It has that same feeling, you know, you're just kind of rolling your eyes like, yeah, sure. But yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good call, man. I, I like that. I'll, I'm buying an alpha glasses of Urza as we speak just because I need one. You're causing uh, a price spike, you know. Yeah.
Your MTG uh, finance hashtag. So going over there, like what are your interpretations or kind of inspiration for rule changes between Swedish and Eternal Central? Because you guys play Eternal Central in Chicago. Right. So there's some pretty big changes. They actually rectified one of these recently. So one big change was that Black Vice uh, was restricted in their metagame and was unrestricted in ours. And their reasoning, if I remember correctly, was around an opening hand with a Black Vice in it was really, really powerful because at minimum it was a lightning bolt and um, could be much better than that. Like, you know, a multiple black vice uh, turn one time twist your hand was just insane, you know? Sure, no. that's really broken, but like that never happens. And also multiple black vices are really bad when they don't do anything. Like against the low to the ground aggro deck that dumps its whole hand, when you're seeing there were three black vices, they're not doing anything. Those are three dead draws. It's just a dead draw late in the game, too, So in so many instances. Like, as much advantage as it creates, it, it, it does lend to a lot of disadvantage to a deck. And every piece of disruption destroys that. Disenchant destroys it. Artifact Blast counters it. Every single red piece of removal that deals with artifacts, which there are a ton, deal with that card. You know, Divine Offering deals with it. Uh, Energy Flux deals with it. It, there's just no end to cards that deal with artifacts. So playing an artifact that's not always effective, it's not that good. And that's kind of why we were like, this card doesn't need to be restricted. It's not that good. And it enables some mediocre prison strategies. Because as I, I kind of went over, most of the prison decks are not that good. And that card also, you know, not that good. It's fine. If, if it makes a prison strategy more viable, that's kind of cool because it's just something else in the metagame that's not, you know, your standard, you know, old school net deck so yeah they had that uh restricted until very recently and, and through noobcon it was restricted at that event so that was one big difference uh misha's workshop is restricted in that metagame uh eternal central we allow four they allow only one um that's still the case uh same with strip mine and uh i want to talk about that real quick because this is like a, a heavily debated thing and yeah it is gets people mad and their panties in a twist as totally. they say in my honest opinion you have to keep Mishra's Workshop restricted if you have mine restricted. I also think that you would need to keep Factory restricted if you have Strip Mine restricted because Factory is way too powerful. It creates all these problems to have Strip Mine restricted because there's these cards that are way too powerful. Like the fact that a Mishra's Factory is a 3 3 blocker is insane. And it can be larger if you've got multiple factories. You know, so you got these cards like, you know, all these like little like like white weenie for example you got these little first strike guys that are you know you know order of light bird which without a pump it's you know a two one factory kills it uh savannah lions it kills it uh green cards like elvish archers it kills it just totally unfair for an uncounterable card that's a land it, it's, it's just insane and it taps for mana too so i feel that if you're going to keep strip mine restricted which is kind of like this great like equalizer type card that every every deck could play because it's colorless and deals with lands. You gotta you gotta keep these super powerful lands restricted, which is bad. I think it it keeping cards restricted just limits deck possibilities. I'm very much for the unrestriction of strip mine because I think that you can safely play those two cards restricted. And that's not even talking about probably the most abusive card in old school magic, which is Library of Alexandria, which is the least fun card that that's out there. And even in the four strip mine meta that we have here. Oftentimes that card still runs away with the game when somebody's like on the draw, for example, with turn one library and the opponent just doesn't have a strip mine or doesn't have a way to deal with it. It's just, it's totally awful. I, I you know, I, I, I'd almost say that, you know, in a, in a metagame, 
that's got restricted strip mine, I would consider banning library because it leads, it just, it totally plows over your opponent and that's no fun. So I, I really feel that, um, yeah, I feel that, I feel that unrestricted strip mine is important just for equalizing. And this is coming from me, somebody who plays many decks with zero strip mines in it because I'd rather play, you know, better mass effects, you know? So, so this is not coming from my player preference. I really absolutely hate getting stripped turn one, turn two, turn three of a game. But if that has to be a possibility just to exist and create deck diversity, I think that's an overall positive and I'll deal with it, you know? So maybe one out of every 10 games is like an awful strip mine game. Like at least that opens up other decks and makes the field more fair and allows more unrestricted cards uh, to exist in the metagame like Workshop and Factory and so on and so forth. So, sorry, long tangent, but but that's, you know, that's another big difference. So strip mine's restricted, um, Workshop's restricted. As far as other things go, I'm trying to think of any major differences. Those are, those are some of the big ones. Oh, they don't play with Mana Burn. That's a very big difference. And I, I think their mentality on that, which makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I respect this opinion, is... Uh, we don't want to play with any weird custom rules because it opens up the situation where you could justify any weird rules, like, you know, stacking damage from six edition rules, or maybe you reintroduce the batch, or maybe you reintroduce interrupts. It kind of opens the floodgates for random insertions of, of uh, old school or like non-current rule sets or pieces of rules. Uh, and so I understand the reason to not want to include one random old rule that's not current anymore. My opposition to that when it comes to Mana Burn is that early sets were designed around Mana Burn. Even much later sets were designed around Mana Burn. And you've got cards like Suchi, you know, which is a 4-4 four, four for 4-4 uh, four, four creature, artifact creature, it costs uh, four colorless. And when Suchi goes to the graveyard, it puts four colorless mana in the controller's uh, mana pool. Well, burning for four as a result of something happening to Suchi it's a very real threat and makes that card much more fair. When Suchi doesn't have a drawback, that's a really bad thing. A card like uh, Drain Power, uh, which is a card that completely revolves around something like Mana Burn existing, once again, just irrelevant. And I think injecting old school rules to make more cards cards more fair or more relevant is probably a good thing. Like it makes Misha's Workshop more fair. I burned off the one workshop I had in play on Friday night in one game. I think I burned for like nine damage over the course of the game and I lost a game narrowly by, by one or two life. That would have decided the game. Right. That's, that's really, that's, that's a key thing. And I feel like with all these cards that really are oriented and designed around mana burn. You just you can't you can't omit that rule. It, it's it's integral to the early days of the game, and I, much more so than cards that are like interrupts, for example. I think interrupts becoming instants is far more reasonable than just getting rid of mana burn. So so I think if there's one rule that needs to stick around. That's it. So that's another big difference out there. Uh, I think going back to the strip mine debate, this is something that comes up all the time and it gets really heated and, and people love to you know go off on on one side or the other about it. And I, I think it's just kind of a it's an argument I don't really care about. You know, it's like I go over there and I play one type of metagame and I, I'm over here and I play one type of metagame. They're the same format with slight differences, like whatever, you know, if I go out, if I go to the Bay Area that uses their own rule set, you know, I, I just don't care. You know, it's just something different. Uh, the fact that certain decks are not viable anymore, I guess I can't play those decks, but that seems fine. And I think it's very, very different than something like Channel Fireball rules, which are picking pieces out of, you know, the Eternal Central playbook and the uh, the uh, original uh, Swedish old school magic uh, playbook as far as their banner restricted list, because I feel like it's not well thought out or researched at all. It's almost, it's very similar to the way I feel about Wizards banner restricted list for vintage. 
that decision is made off like prior to prior to online magic prior to prior to mtgo having vintage i feel this the decision making that went into making a vintage banned and restricted list was based off almost no reality and a couple guys who maybe pay attention to casual events because there are no real vintage sanctioned events out there there's there's one or two a year worlds at the time and then a bunch of you know homegrown events like nyse that are you know not sanctioned and have proxies and so on and so forth so decision making was done by wizards with really minimal thought that went into it because they don't care about that format and it was very obvious from a lot of the choices they make and a lot of the reasoning for the choices that they make and i feel that channel fireballs ban and restricted choices really mirror that the big one if i remember correctly they have they have unrestricted workshop but restricted strip mine hmm. seems pretty stupid yeah it's just well it, again you know the people who make these decisions have to they have to be groups of players who actually play the game and they have to come from people who actually think and care about this stuff not from some you know body that's looking to profit off of this Right. Channel Fireball doesn't care about old school magic. They care about selling old school singles. I mean, it's cool that there's more old school magic events available because of that. It's it's not like what we do here. You know, they're not allowing collector's edition because they can't. Well, you know, that's I, I just I don't know. I think uh, that's not what I care about when it comes to old school magic. Uh, inclusivity in the U.S. is a big deal for old school magic because there's so few people who are playing and who are able to play. Again, that's another difference between uh, the U.S. and Sweden, they have so many people who want to play at NoobCon that it's become an invite-only tournament. So clearly expanding the amount of playable cards to make the format more inclusive, it's an irrelevant argument that doesn't mean anything because their player base is big enough as is. It's too big. So, you know, people complaining about, you know, exclusive sets, I think it's a stupid argument. It doesn't matter. They've got their own thing and it clearly works very well. We have a different situation over here in the United States where we need to build groups in a homegrown fashion and inclusivity is a big deal. It's a totally right. different frontier. And and so, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fire that, that goes between, you know, all this stuff. And I I just think most of the arguments specifically around, you know, Swedish versus uh eternal central rules, I think that's the thing they, they don't matter. It's a it's a different thing over there. Uh I mean similar gameplay, but like it's different. There's a lot of elements that are different. And I think overall it works for them. And so who are we really to comment on that? I mean, we can say that we don't agree with their decision-making process, but we're basing this off of our own experience here and our own needs here. And our own needs here include, you know, being able to get more people to play. That's not a need over there. So Channel Fireball, for those who don't know, they've announced that they're doing, they're taking over all of the Magic the Gathering GPs moving forward as the tournament organizer. And they've included 1993, 1994, you know, old school Magic into the GP events as a side event option. And they have their own rule set as Danny mentioned. How do you and they're they're doing this in event halls, obviously. How do you feel about the differences of event halls versus that kind of traditional, you know, playing at pubs, bars, and industrial spaces you mentioned, uh, you know, private homes, etc. How do you think those differences affect the format uh, as far as like growth, the player base, having fun, and, and just the overall culture of the format? That's a very good question. I have mixed feelings on this because I feel like it really opens up exposure. I'm not sure if it opens up exposure to the right people. I think, at least for me, the kind of people that I want to see playing 93, 94 are people who are psyched about just playing this weird style of magic with weird old cards 
and having to look up, you know, the, the, the current text on cards like Power Surge, like that, nothing feels more old school to me than looking up cards that you have no idea what they do that are not even very widely played, even in old school, and just doing this in a fun, inviting environment. And uh, I think the tournament environment at, at a GP is not that fun, inviting environment, you know. Uh, uh, ben Perry, uh, Shaman Ben on, on Twitter, I believe, uh, brought a, a beer for me from uh, Black Lotus Brewery in Michigan. And he was bringing uh, like glasses and, and like goblets from Black Lotus Brewery and giving them out at, at GP Louisville to people as kind of like these like, you know, gifts to other people that he's friends with in the community. And he brings me this, he brings me this, uh, I think it was a barley wine from Black Lotus Brewery. And, uh, and I'm walking around with this barley wine and I get called out by uh, event organizers and judges for carrying this unopened bottle around and just like, hey, you gotta get out of here. You gotta, you gotta throw that out. That's, that's a, that's a problem. And I mean, like, and that was just like, I had this moment. I'm like, yep, this is why I don't like organized events. This is so stupid. This is just another stupid moment. I get the reasoning, yeah. but it's just like, this is not the environment where I want to think of old school magic. You know, this is, there's nothing fun about like having to deal with something stupid like that. And uh, it's going to have all the bureaucracy and, and stupidity that that moment encompassed times 10. If you're actually playing it, judge calls about chaos orb flips. <laughs> Like it's just obscene. Yeah, it's just so stupid. Like I, I, it just it's it just seems really really stupid to me. And uh, and it seems like a marketing opportunity for Channel Fireball. Sure, if there was if there's a Channel Fireball event happening in Chicago, I didn't happen to have like you know something scheduled around it, and I felt like doing it. Sure, I would totally go down and play ninety three ninety four. Do I feel like that's an optimal environment to do it? Absolutely not. I think ninety three ninety four is best enjoyed. You know casually oftentimes with an alcoholic beverage if if that's what you're into um i the way we do rounds in chicago is they're 50 minute rounds and when you go to time you get five extra turns if the if the uh, round is not determined within those five turns you go to chaos orb flips where you take out a, a common target you know any card and each opponent flips a chaos orb onto it in turn so let's say i go let's say you and i are in a this tournament and we go to time and you know, the, the round is one and one and, and it's not decided. One of us starts, I flip a Chaos Orb. If I hit the target, you have to flip a Chaos Orb. If you miss it, you lose the match because that's considered a loss and that's that's determined. If you make it, we keep on going until one of us misses. If I, let's say I had missed that first flip and you make it, I lose the, the uh, match. It's kind of this great way that you never end up with draws in your event. And it's also very like school spirit. Well, guess what? That would not be legal in a Channel Fireball event. And, and that's another one of these like kind of old school tidbits you know, that's not something they did back in the day, but that's, you know, this kind of, you know, stylized element we've added to our tournaments that like makes it more fun and, and silly and ridiculous and random, you know, it's a, uh, and yeah. also makes chaos or flipping a skill that you should have. I guess the underlining feeling to me is like, I wouldn't like as a kid in, in, in those beginning years of magic, I wouldn't want like my parents like hanging out behind me while we were playing or, or like some sort of governing I don't like having that judge there that like is just kind of looking at your cards for value's sake and oh this is kind of cool like and kind of dictating it just kind of loses a little bit of its freedom which I really like about 9394 is like playing at a pub and like no one can figure out how this interaction completely nails down channel fire like, like yeah go on a, a lot more competitiveness to it I guess and 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 having that kind of judge behind you and, and just being in the hall is just it, I feel like it kind of like pushes my mentality towards that petitive, eternal kind of mind state. Because that's kind of what you're used to as a player 
kind of going to those events. Like you don't travel typically to an event hall just to have fun completely. I mean, or if you're playing in the main event, like you wouldn't, you typically don't bring like a super goofy deck. Like you play somewhat competitively and you, you're in that state of mind. So going into one of those event halls, my 93, 94 decks there to just, you know, spill blood all over the tables. It's just kind of like being in that event hall kind of lends to it just not really having feeling that 9394 usually provides in like a private space with your friends. I completely agree. Uh, like it feels, especially when you get into these weird tier two and tier three old school decks, it really feels like the wild west. Like you're actually discovering new weird shit that you had never seen before. You know, the first time that I had actually like considered copying a Mistress factory and how that worked and having, you know, I was even wrong today on, on the fact that I was like, oh yeah, I think the card's still blue. No, it's not still blue. It's just like, just these weird things that happen it's it's just so cool and and you discover that you know in kind of this this crazy like homegrown environment like for example uh that event that i was talking about where uh james was playing the power surge deck we ran it as a non-tournament and we all drove up you know an hour and a half up to milwaukee and people from wisconsin met us down there like who live in central wisconsin the reason we didn't run a tournament was we didn't want to inconvenience anybody who just wanted to randomly grab lunch or something like that in the middle. We just wanted to all hang out and have fun and play games of magic. And that was just like, when you think about it, that's so that's so in alignment with what I would imagine the original ideas around this game to be. And then when you look at this like thousand person GP tournament setting, that's exactly not what, what I want to do. And I don't think, Richard Garfield, I don't think ever thought that that was the end result of this like silly little card game that was a side note to Dungeons and Dragons. Right, right, yeah. So you guys are doing something that I feel like is a little more in tune with with like how 9394 is typically played with, you guys are having the uh, Players Ball in Chicago. Extremely exciting for us outsiders in the USA that you know are kind of looking for something that's bigger, uh, similar to Eternal Weekend's '93, '94 event. So this is cool. Like it gives another large event uh, for us in the United States. It might intrigue more people to kind of jump into the format where they see, you know, okay, I can definitely play two large events in a year if, if this becomes annual. Um, so do you want to break down some, some of the, some of uh, the details of the player's ball? I, I am going, I'm excited about it. Uh, Fucking awesome. yeah, I'm a little, amazing. I'm a little vague on the details, but when I saw it, I was just like, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just make this work. However, it's not a big deal. I'm That's really exciting. Well, let us, you know, let any of us know if you need any, uh, any help with anything. We're, we're all locals. So yeah, yeah, definitely. we're here to help. Um, so the players ball, um, this wasn't, this was definitely not at all my idea. So, uh, Bob Agra, one of the guys that we, uh, that we play with, uh, he's in Lord of the, of the Pit, which is like basically everyone here who plays often, they're, they're, they're all Lords, you know, this is, there's no, there's no initiation ritual other than actually showing up consecutively to events and, and to hang out and have fun that then, you know, if you do that in your local, there you go. So Bob, uh, wanted to run a larger event. And one place where we often go, seemingly go always on Friday nights, which is weird, but um, they always have tons of space, is uh, Revolution Brewing, which is uh, one of the local uh, beer breweries uh, in Chicago. And, and I think they're national. There's, I've seen Revolution other places. Their tap room, it's about like, a, like probably a mile and a half from my house. 
and they've got tons and tons of seatings uh, in their tap room. Um, people rent it out all the time. There's tables in the back that are that are that we've seen reserved. And rent is actually the wrong word. You don't have to pay to rent this out because they expect that if you say we need spots for 50 people, that 50 people are buying beer, so this is a great deal for them. And so, uh, so Bob contacted uh, Revolution and uh, secured uh, 48 seats. Um, another really cool thing is they don't serve food and they allow you to bring in outside food. So your food costs can be pretty low because you can order like pizza for everybody and everyone can just chip in or something like that. Or you can, you know, not go with pizza and like, you know, pick up like a cheap sandwich somewhere or something like that. And uh, yeah, just tons of seating. So, so Bob got this together and he's like, and originally he said he wanted to run a larger event, like something that we hadn't done before, because normally our events are anywhere from like 12 to 26, 27 players, which is a lot, you know, because when we have like 25, 24, 25, 26 players, uh, those are all local people, which is kind of amazing that that can even happen. But um, we've actually had it. But he wanted something bigger uh, that would get some people from out of town because, um, you know, you guys, you know, we we were hoping for we were hoping for uh you know Ben and and his group from uh, Michigan you know because they they haven't ever made it out before and we thought it'd be kind of cool so just making like a bigger style event so that was kind of his idea and and, and we're gonna run an event I believe it's set to be I think there's a top eight plan for this just due to the size but again there's gonna be no draws there's gonna be uh, chaos orb flips so uh, practice your orb flips um, and last that I remember 39 of 48 seats have already been signed up for so uh, if anyone has any interest in going to this again it'll be at Chicago in Chicago at the Revolution Tap Room on August 27th um, Actually, pulled up. I was off by one day. It's uh, Saturday, August twenty sixth. Saturday, August twenty sixth starts at twelve p.m. in Chicago. Uh, runs till eight p.m. Boom. Okay, yeah. So, if anyone has any interest in going to that, uh, I believe the sign up is on the Eternal Central website, and it's using Eventbrite. Um, please sign up for it if you're actually going to go uh, because I think seats are running out very quickly. But yeah, it should be an awesome event. Um, again, pretty casual. You know, everyone's going to be drinking. So, uh, you know, if Daniel Humphreys shows up, watch out. He can play really well when he's drunk. He's coming. Unmistakable, babe. Be uh, prepared. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, he is, uh, we, so far from Atlanta, we have myself, uh, Rosenblade, and uh, Humphreys. Uh, Rosenblade and Humphreys are from the Taxmen. They'll they'll both be there. They were at the Eternal Central Tournament uh, at Eternal Weekend last year. Uh, so the three of us are coming up from the ATL. We might have a special guest, Sean O'Brien, as well. Uh, I know Gen Con is, I think, the week before. So he's kind of toggling with his schedule, trying to figure out how to make that work. So, But it'd be cool if he can come, too. So that's the Atlanta squad so far. There might be more. We have... Um, low DCI man that I mentioned earlier and John Malkovich, uh, they are both not on Facebook and are unaware of the event, but I will speak to them about it in person on Thursday. So we might have two more coming if spots are still available when they are. Fantastic. No yeah. Well, that sounds really great. This, I, I think, I think this is going to be a super fun event. I think it's going to be a relatively casual atmosphere. I mean, with that many people there, it, it does detract from the casualness a little bit because you can actually you actually play a lot of rounds so you can reasonably you know bring up a, a strong deck and and see how it does over and over again but i think you're likely to see some pretty cool technology um just because there's so many people going who who always play just super interesting decks so uh i'm, I'm pretty amped i i have no idea what i'm gonna play yet but um i guess i'll let everybody know when they see it that yeah, should be really cool
yeah, I'm super excited. It's gonna be great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm so excited. So many people from Atlanta are coming. Like that's such a cool thing. You know, it's it's just crazy that we can run something like this, and it's totally homegrown. There's not there's no interaction from Watsi at all in this. This is entirely you know. We're playing with collector's edition. We're flipping chaos orbs to eliminate draws. Like this is, this is some rogue shit. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, me too. It's awesome. So, and then we have Eternal Weekend coming as well. There's a big um, 93-94 event, and that's oh be, yeah, uh, Pittsburgh. For those that are not aware, Eternal Weekend was announced uh, for that city, and uh, it looks like we are going to have another 93-94 tournament. Um, as you mentioned earlier, it went from like around 15 to start and then went to like 50, 90 plus range or 80 plus range. And uh, this year might break 100, it looks like. NoobCon did. Uh, so it might be the same for uh, Eternal Weekend. It's pretty exciting. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think, I'm hoping this will break 100. That's, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, and you see uh, an interesting mix of players come out at, at a large event like that. Because you have people like like us who are playing a lot of this and are probably playing often much more fringe type decks, and then you have the people who play this format, you know, once a year because they're collectors and they own all the cards and woohoo, they can play the deck for you know their one day a year of glory and hopefully they get crushed by Daniel Humphreys. Glasses of Verza, dude. Hopefully they get crushed by Glasses of Verza. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely cool. You got a, you got a big mix. Um, but I know, uh, Jacob's planning it out and he's, he's looking for a dedicated venue just because, uh, last year it got a little crazy cause we played in, uh, the Gordon Biersch tap room slash brew pub kind of place. Um, and it was just, you know, that was just too many people for that type of environment for the type of seating we had. Uh, it was just kind of crazy. There was a lot of shuffling around. It was very hard to find your opponent. So I think Jacob wants to do something at like a dedicated hall, uh, that either has its own uh, bar or, you know, some sort of BYO situation. Um, who knows? But uh, it's definitely going to be really good. I'm I'm super excited about it. It's kind of funny because uh, I've talked to more and more people, and so has he, that, that, are, uh, that are actually coming specifically to Eternal Weekend to only play old school magic. They're not coming for any other reason. There are people who drove up last year specifically for that. It just, it just blew my mind. We, you know, we, I... I we, we had a yeah sorry go on we had a ninety three ninety four tournament here probably a month well no probably about two months ago now and we had we had a couple people driving but one guy at least we had a legacy large event you know for like a mox and there was a modern one the next day and we had a ninety three ninety four event kind of sprawled into this weekend as well and one older guy probably around fifty years old drove around like. 400 miles come play 93 94 that was it and then he left that's incredible but you're namageddon it was great dude that's so cool like that's what i mean like there's something that makes people so excited about old school magic and they're excited enough to do that there's people excited enough to play like all alpha decks not because they're good but again it's got it's just all style points and, yeah. and it's just so cool to see people doing stuff like this because it's not something you associate with high-end tournament magic. It's not something you associate with people who own power. Yet, nonetheless, it is actually happening. It's it's just a it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, and like half of his deck was like chronicles, and so it, it had the feeling that like he had bought back in, you know. And and there was this event that finally spoke to him. So it, it it's really cool in the sense that you have 
players like myself i was playing you know in actual you know 1983 1984 and and quit you know around homelands around that time you know after the chronicles bust fourth edition bust but and then when i came back you know i had been playing 93 94 quote unquote you know over the time that i'd quit just over christmas with my friends just because that was the only magic we knew you know i'd finally come back just due to a coworker or whatnot and I just, when I played Legacy or any other Magic, I just wanted to play old cards. Like, if I was playing Legacy, like, my first time playing Legacy, I was playing, like, you know, Dark Rituals and Juzoms and Beta Duels and just things that, like, I felt like were nostalgic to me and felt, you know, felt old and were things that I was familiar with. And, it, you know, being an older player, you know, those guys are out there. And, and I feel like this creates, like, a nice home for a lot of those people because this is, when you're coming back from, playing long ago, like Planeswalkers or, you know, a big turnoff. And a lot of these, a lot of the new cards seem really broken when they're mixed with power. But, you know, as we mentioned earlier, when 93-94, there's kind of a more balanced level and, and power just kind of feels a lot better, at least to me being an older player. And I think a lot of the other older players feel that way too. Like kind of look at Vintage, like, oh, this is really broken. And, you know, Legacy's got all these new cards and I don't, I don't like the way they look. I uh, get off my lawn, sort of thing. But with ninety three, ninety four, I feel like it's this this great place that you can just go right back to from where you came. I remember playing uh, in a recent uh, Lords of the Pit Invitational event. I was playing against this guy Mike, who was playing uh, Blue Red Burn, and I was playing the uh, the Turbo uh, Chaos Orb deck. And I go, I, I I had to mold like five or six. It really sucked, and. Uh, and I go like turn one, Mox, Soul Ring, Felwarstone, go. And he goes, City of Brass, Flying Man, Black Lotus. And I respond to his Black Lotus. He, he, he starts doing something with the Lotus. I said, hold on a second. I respond to his Black Lotus with a Spell Blast on zero. Yes. I was thinking when you said Spell Blast earlier, I was like, well, Spell Blast is really good because it's just exactly that reason. The Moxon and the Lotus, it's just one blue counter totally insane he had never even imagined that could happen but you know it's, it's interesting because vintage there are zero cost things that you have to be worried about but knowing the card pool in old school is very important for spike is a viable card he should have known that was a complete misplay he should have absolutely known that playing the land turned on my mana sources and there are no free spells that are playable at instant speed so he should have done everything he could before playing the land it's a good point and it's just like it's, it's a cool moment because like there's definitely still play skill. There's definitely moments where knowledge of the format is super, super vital. And that was one of those moments. So it's like, it's cool. You don't have mental misstep. You don't have forcible, but this weird, these weird, very powerful, inexpensive interactions still happen. It's, it's just, uh, it's definitely like a, a totally different situation. It's pretty fun. Yeah, definitely. Eternal Central, Eternal Weekend Tournament. Do you, do you think we're going to get overblown with the deck or do you think we just prepare for the Wild West? Um, I think there are going to be a lot of people playing the deck. Uh, so my friend Evan, uh, who's out in New York and plays a lot of vintage, plays old school. He, he started playing really early on as far as like this old school craze goes because he played in our first event at Eternal Weekend, the the 12 player or whatever. And and he really likes, you know, combo-y decks. He likes, he likes decks that do big, cool things. Uh, oftentimes with minimal protection. And um, he, every time I bring up 93, 94 to him, it, he just talks about how, how bummed out he is by it. And I think the reason is he's in the New York community and all he sees are these like, you know, stock decks. He's not playing against Hazazan Tamar. He's not playing against Nether Void. 
He's playing against blue, red burn. He's playing against, you know, black decks with, you know, four Juzum and four sinkhole. And he's playing against the deck. He's, He's not playing against creative, interesting things that that excite you about ninety three, ninety four. He's playing against the the net deck ninety three, ninety four gauntlet, and he, and he just you know so according to him he's like oh yeah this format solved it's not fun to play against because he's thinking about decks like the deck. As far as what we're going to see in Pittsburgh, I think we're going to see a lot of the deck, and I think a lot of it's going to come from people who don't play this format very often. Which I know I probably sounded pretty negative about. And that's because I am pretty negative about that. I think, uh, you know, I, I don't look at those people as people who, who really care or, or are invested because they're not exploring and they're not building community. Because if you were building community, your friends would not be cool with you playing that shit all the time. That's kind of like how our just scene is in general in Atlanta. Like even our legacy scene is pretty off the beaten path. Someone might come with like tribal vampires and, you know, and actually win. Uh, then... That's awesome. Yeah, and, and vintage. That's the best. Kind of the same thing. It's just, yeah, style points are are worth quite a bit in our area. And that goes with our 93, 94. Like, everyone's, yeah, definitely playing. I, I don't think we really, I think we might have, like, one person that plays the deck sometimes. But, I mean, more than anything, our meta has a lot of Armageddon and Goblins. Goblins. But, That's awesome. It's pretty fun. I mean, I, I think I think you're dead on though. Like keeping the creativity there is, is a key thing to keep the format alive and growing. So especially like uh, Evan, who had kind of gotten a little tiresome of it all, which totally makes sense. People like that, it's good to keep them excited about brewing and playing like brewed decks, like things that actually have some thought behind them. I, I think I played Evan actually at Eternal Weekends, not last year, but the year before that on philly he's a good guy yeah yeah Evan, evan's real good people yeah he was was he uh he might have been on blue red at tog maybe he was played an artifact based build hail mishra uh, i think hail mishra he's the same guy that or not works with but uh is friends with juzom jim is that right yes yes he's the guy who who did uh the land lotus juzom video yeah the land lotus juzom channel those those videos are insane. I think those are some of the best. That's that's probably the best content that's ever come out for ninety three ninety four. Right there, hands yeah. down. I can't think of anything I like more than that. No question. I, I'm hundred percent agree with you there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he he was a uh, Randy Rampage two. I remember yeah. the name. That that was him in there. <laughs> yeah, Evan. Yeah, but I, I think he's totally good, right about that. Such a good name. Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, they they really thought of all of it. Tim Twister. <laughs> Vacation Javaliers uh, section that they had. The, Dude, the, the commercial for Homelands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's totally incredible. It's like, that's a great example. It's like, it's all this style point stuff, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I agree with him. If I was only playing with people who played like stock decks, if I'm playing against Blue Red Burn, if I'm playing against the deck, uh, if, if I'm playing against, you know, stock rug, that's if that's all that people play, especially if they never switch up their decks, be unbearable. Like that would turn me completely off 93, 94 if that's what, what was going on. That's not. I mean, I, I got yelled at uh, for not making a new deck because uh, I've been running this uh, Turbo Orb thing for, you know, like a month now because I've been really lazy. But I need to get off my ass and actually make a new deck, which is bad because I need to buy new cards and I don't want to do that because it's very expensive. Yeah, I don't know. There's just so much cool shit out there. Like I was thinking like a like a four rack, four storm world deck with disrupting scepters. You know, there's just so many weird things that you can play 
that are not really explored, you just have to venture into that tier two, tier three range. You just have to say, if I play against somebody playing the deck, they're gonna flat out beat me. If I play against somebody playing really optimized Urnum Geddon, I will just, they'll, they'll probably beat me. But you think, if I play against anyone else playing a weird ass deck like me, it's gonna be a coin flip and it's gonna be a pretty hilarious coin flip. So, I mean, that that's enough to get me excited about playing Magic, you know? Yeah, and I think even if you kind of like play a, a tier two, tier three deck or whatnot, and you optimize your sideboard for those matchups, you might be able to squeak through, bring a lot of heavy artillery for what you think you might lose to. Totally, there's some great cards out there. I, I know we've mentioned a bunch of them, but like artifacts rule this format and the artifact hate is incredible. It's just absolutely unbelievable, you know, between like energy flux and shatterstorm, and damping field that's it you know that there's your board sweeps it's it's totally fantastic i, I think uh the hardest permanent removed by a long shot is is always going to be the enchantment enchantments are are pretty much very very hard to kill because you all you've got is disenchant chaos orb navinural's disc tranquility and then you know bounce spells yeah it's not very good tranquility is at such low play too i mean enchantress might be a good route you know i don't know I agree. Enchantress is really interesting, and uh, I think the only reason you haven't seen it is because it's very expensive to pimp it out. But um, you know, beta enchantresses are are nothing inexpensive, you know. But uh, there's some really funny cards that you can play in Enchantress. That and, and Sylvan Library is one of the top top quality unrestricted cards, hands down. Just totally insane card. Um, and so you know, there, there's another great green spell, which I think is important. Green needs more playable cards in in ninety three, ninety four. So it's it's good that. That exists, but uh, yeah, we need to see more Enchantress. That'd be really cool. Simbad goes great with Sylvan Library. Oh man, I built a deck like that. So uh, this was one of my awful brews, and I probably won one out of every five games, but they were all won exactly the same way. So it was uh, three or f no, it was four and still energy. Four Tim. Hello, my dear friend. One clone, three Sinbad, three Sylvan Libraries. And the way that you would win this, so it played a, a ton of counter spells, disenchant, all that stuff. The way that I won almost every game came down to having instill energy on multiple uh, different prodigal sorcerers. <laughs> and you would win the game by going time walk, ping, ping again, regrowth, time walk, play time walk, ping, ping again, recall, regrowth, time walk, time walk, ping, ping again, you know? And so you basically would take five turns in a row and kill them all in one shot. That was the only way that the deck ever won games. And I know it sounds like a total corner case. I'm, I'm only talking about restricted cards. And I'm also talking about having two Tims in play and two Instill Energies in play. But that was how every match I, or match is the wrong word. Every game I won was won. I definitely won no matches with that deck. Yeah, I love Tim. I want to dress up like Tim for next Eternal Central weekend. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I think there's two there's two uh, attire, maybe three attire options. One, team attire, which now has to be pretty badass, although this, uh, this tracksuit's sounding pretty good. Two, <laughs> cosplaying as 93, 94 cards. Extra points if you actually blow a hole in your head for amnesia. So and then good. three, of course, dressing like you're living in the 90s. This is uh, one of the New York guys. He did this. He was wearing a, uh, he had a fanny pack. Uh, he had the whole thing. He had the, like, the multicolored uh, windbreaker. And uh, his deck was truly in a plastic bag. Oh, okay. I remember there was the guy at the at, at last year's uh, Eternal Weekend that was playing without sleeves. Pretty authentic. It's another. God, that's badass. Yeah, on bar table. <laughs> Pretty sick. Man, yeah. You know, there's there's people who have more balls than I do. That's awesome. If there's a team that dresses up where everyone dresses up like Tim, I will reward you. Man, I, I think that has to happen now. There, there will be a reward. 
I hope to collect. So Watsy's having their 25 year anniversary this summer. A little Vorthos for you guys out there. Stuff going on in the new set that I don't really know much about, but I do know that one of the Planeswalkers is going to Dominaria right now to get reinforcements to fight the new school non-legends Nicobolus. And this has all kind of been told now, and their 25-year anniversary is this summer. There's a lot of opportunity for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, this will be the first time returning to Dominaria since the early 90s. So, like, I guess it spawns a couple interesting ideas uh, as far as what sort of cards they're going to print for new Eternal, for competitive Eternal formats, but what would they bring back, you know, flavor-wise? Like, I'm, I'm more interested in the flavor, personally, than, you know, card mechanics and new combos. You know, there might be some sort of uh, retouch into Yawgmoth, maybe even the Brothers, hoping for Cosmic Horror or Abomination, but it's doubtful. Uh, Mishra and Urza would be very nice to see again. Yeah, I'd imagine they might bring them back as Planeswalkers or whatnot, but, I mean, the other thing is, too, is... What if they brought back like old border for a set? That might be cool too. It's kind of a shame because I feel like Wizards touched on something really, really cool that they totally left alone after doing it. So of all the sets I've ever bought since getting back into Magic, because I I started playing at the tail end of 94 and then and then played and and when I say playing, I mean really, really like a, you know, I was I was a young kid, you know. This was like, you know, making up your rules style magic, you know. So uh I didn't really understand how to play Magic properly and, and, and probably not even fully properly until like Ice Age. And then I, I pretty much stopped playing after Ice Age. But when I got back in, which was entirely because Vintage was huge in my area, I, I got back in, in in 2004, Vintage was just massive. What really, what the first set that I actually bought new cards from, a pretty severe amount. Like I brought, I bought some like packs of Mirrodin and things like that, but it wasn't like I was like buying box upon box. I bought boxes of Time Spiral. Just absolute boxes. Like, like we would we would draft Time Spiral. We'd just we'd buy boxes. We'd open them. Like we were obsessed with it. And it was these these time shifted cards. It's the coolest shit ever. It like I opened up. It got me on a roll. I opened up three foil squires, and I was just like so tickled by it because of how ridiculous the concept of that card as like a premium card in a pack was. That I ended up buying out all the foil squires I could find online, and I backed a mono white EDH deck in them eventually because they're so ridiculous but like that wizards would be it would just be so cool if they brought back those old border cards again like they did in time spiral but i doubt they will because there have been so many opportunities for them to do something cool like that and they've just they really haven't explored it very much and they and they don't seem to care like uh the old border dark confidant uh the old border sort of light and shadow and sort of fire and ice the old border uh crucible of worlds totally amazing everybody loves it oh yeah there's a what is it? The green card. Um, Noble Hierarch? That's the one. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so they did all those cards in foil, old card frame. And I think it would be very cool if they revisited that type of thing. I've always thought that it would be really cool if they started doing judge promos in non-foil that looked like alpha beta, you know, with the, the double black border and the dots in the corners and bad wording. Oh, man. You know, people are like, oh, yeah, they would never do that because of the bad wording. And it's like they print textless cards all the time. How, how is the bad wording any different? They they change errata on cards all the time. How is bad wording a problem? You don't – if the cards are printed saying something, you can't take that at face value. Look up the look up the actual errata on the card. So if that's the case, they could easily start doing this, and I think they would be hugely popular. Like just imagine what a, what a beta template Jace 
that was non-foil with bad wording. It, just imagine how in demand that card would be as a, as a judge promo. So like the thought that Wizards returns to Dominaria and does the same type of time spirally thing where every every pack is an old card frame like reprint or or you know old old style reprint of something newer. I think it would be hugely popular. I don't see them doing it though. Yeah, yeah. just imagine old school Grizzlebrand, like Alpha Grizzlebrand. It'd be insane. Uh, it was interesting. It was my prediction that Vintage was going to break off from Wizards of the Coast in the early 2000s. I was thinking this because um, I was an anthropology student and I did like a microethnography as a project on on Vintage Magic, and that was one of my predictions. And I I strongly feel that if MTGO didn't start uh, didn't employ Vintage especially with the way prices are going, I wouldn't have been surprised if that would have happened. Like NYSE is an example of that, you know? And that's a huge event. That's one of the biggest vintage events right now in the world. And it is entirely run outside of Wizards of the Coast. It, it allows proxies. It is, is totally its own thing. If MTGO never incorporated vintage and the prices kept on rising, why would, why would players want to even interact with Wizards of the Coast? You know, I think the hardest part would just be figuring out who's your governing body for making choices, but at least you would know that the choices were well-informed and made by people who actually play the format and care about it rather than, you know, a company that makes no money off this that runs very few tournaments off of it, and, you know, has almost no interest other than for uh, Magic Online. Right, right. Uh, That's interesting. But never happened because I, I'm, I would say probably because of Magic Online or I could just be totally full of shit, but that's me. That makes sense. That's, that's always like their one kind of grappling point to the eternal formats is that online magic. I think people think they have a distaste for eternal formats more than they do. Uh, and the argument to that is always that they have a pretty decent amount invested into legacy and vintage online. It's still a pretty large sum they have to pay out to keep that all running uh, online regardless of how they feel about the formats. That's true. It's it's uh, it's crazy. So, but I totally derailed you. Uh, my main thing was just, yeah, the, the flavor that might return, you know, which we kind of touched on. Curious who the designers will be for the set. Uh, it would be really cool if they brought back uh, the creator, Richard Garfield. That would be incredible. It would be really, really cool. To assist, yeah, just have him as, you know, just uh, kind of as an advisor for the project. Um, even even uh, my first was like some sort of like artistic direction help. I don't know how they would utilize him, but it, it, as much as I I think that they're gonna they're gonna miss the ball. That there will have to be some sort of flavor that's touched on for this set with Dominaire with with you know all the old cards and the Godfather sets. I think they're gonna. Have to, pay some sort of like tribute or homage to the old cards i think you're right i, th I think you're gonna see some themes revisited uh sadly i don't think I, I agree with you as we've just talked about i don't think the aesthetic is going to be revisited at all and it would be so easy for them to do it you know because most of the artists are still around making art you know aside from rush and hoover are the first two thoughts i have aside from those two any of these other big names would be happy to do art and would probably find this to be very, very cool. You know, Schuler, Tucker, uh, Tiden, you know, the, the list goes on. Like, I, I think all these people would have an interest in, in being a part of this. Uh, Therese Nielsen, maybe, you know, even though she, her most of her stuff came later, you know, or Foglio's like, it, it, this could be extremely cool. 
you know, and they could revisit old borders. They could revisit white border cards. It's like, it's funny to think that white borders are, are old school because they don't exist anymore. I mean, maybe they'll do something with like their, their dog shit foil cards that they dump in booster packs, the, the uh, masterpieces. Um, those are the worst. They just they, like, they're just so bad. Totally. Like, if they, but if they like flip that to like invert the whole idea where it's like they're non foil and they're old border. Like that might actually be interesting. Like, like they're like, yeah, we we have our whatever they call them. Um, I know they changed the name, but masterpiece, whatever. Relics of the past. That's what these should yeah. be called. Yeah, relics of the past or whatnot. And uh, you know, they're they're non foil, maybe even alpha cut. Oh and, my god, ridiculous! Old border, and then they get like an old artist to do, and then but they do like new cards, like like you said, like they do like Jace, and then they have like Anson do the J's and then do it with like alpha cuts with like old, old double black border. Like it would just look with like the white dots, you know, just like, you know, maybe old text too. old text might be a reach, but something like that might be cool. Cause they, they're just, there wasn't foils back, you know, when, you know, the sets were originally introduced and whatnot. So it, it kind of makes sense in a weird way, but well, they do it very doubtful, but it just kind of lends to how much play space they actually do have with this set. You're right. You're, it, it, those are all really good points. Yeah, I think there's so many cool things they could do, and I really would love to see it. I just, you know, I'm I'm relatively pessimistic about it, and I don't expect it. Um, yeah. And also, the value on the secondary market would be just nuts. Yeah, it would. Because, you know, we're not the only people who... Who likes seeing you know alpha cards? We're not the only people who like seeing like double black borders or or bad wording or or simplistic art that that leads like a lot to the imagination that creates imagination. You know, uh, there's a lot of people who really, you know, they, they grew up with these cards. You know, and, and and those are the kind of people who play ninety three ninety four. But they're not just the people who play ninety three ninety four. Those are people who play legacy. Those are people who play vintage. Those are people who play modern now and don't play those old formats because they have no one to play it with. And they seeing this, I think this would just ignite some excitement in people and it's just uh it's like free money for them you know this is, <laughs> doesn't cost them anything to do this other than you know it, it just increases their their player base yeah it would add a lot of diversity to their portfolio and it would really kind of like go towards a market that probably has a larger disposable out uh income agreed that's a very good point it's just like they probably would be pushing a lot more of those because they would be so much more unique and you know again they would just cater to a specific audience that you know probably percentage-wise has a higher likelihood of you know being able to afford these cards and buy in and might typically not buy into these sort of cards but are now and then you also have the original you know foundation base of people that buy these chase cards no matter what so it, That's very true. I mean, like, I, I'm a great example of this. I bought so many packs of Time Spiral. I bought, and then I started buying packs from from all of the uh, all the expansions because, again, it was like just super cool. Like, I, I I probably one of the few people actually likes the Future Sight Border. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I like it. You know, I thought like Tarmogoyf looked pretty cool. Although I thought the card was terrible when I first saw it, and I, and I sold out of my Tarmogoyfs at twelve dollars and fifty cents when I hit their peak. Um, right. and that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that, uh, I didn't think that bears were what I was interested in playing in vintage, and they are still not what I'm interested in playing in vintage. But you know, hey, that floats some people's boat. But, but yeah, you know, I, I, those sets got me really excited. I bought tons of cold snap as well because it was just a, 
We actually drafted it with Ice Age. Oh, that's cool. And man, were those cards powerful compared to Ice Age cards. It's a cool idea. It was really fun. Um, Mana Burden still existed, and Braid of Fire was the coolest card I saw, and I lost to Braid of Fire a couple times, which was pretty funny. Um, but the Braid of Fire Mystic Remora combo is pretty sweet. Never got it happen, but uh, I, I definitely drafted a bunch of vintage decks that had Braid of Fire and Mystic Remora, and I, I never got it to work. Sadly. Next time. Yeah, next time. There's always next time. Well, I guess on that note, uh, do you have any uh, shout-outs to uh, Chicago people? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned a bunch of people, but uh, I'd like to shout-out to all the Lords of the Pit. All these people that I'm playing Magic with every single week, multiple times, and just keeping 93-94 alive. Um, and again, uh, Evan and his uh, Land Lotus Jusum crew. Uh, again, most badass videos ever. And of course... Uh, Magnus, Kala, and all my friends in, uh, in Sweden. This is an amazing format, and uh, you inspired a lot of people. We're all having a lot of fun with it. And of course, you guys in Atlanta, Tusk and the Taxmen. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're out here. We're, we're uh, representing the Dirty South. That's some badass shit over there. Hey, hey, Sean, Sean O'Brien's deck, uh, uh, Mitesh Rao, who used to be in Chicago, now lives out in um, California built a uh built a, a very similar deck like i think almost exactly the same added a couple more of, of certain cards so basically slightly different numbers took down one of our events completely he's the only undefeated person in the room so uh you know you guys are always innovating i mean that's the godfather right that's yeah the- I, yeah i guess that's we should probably mention that i don't think we've ever mentioned it on the podcast before um sean o'brien who's typically on this cast one of the Team Tusk members uh, and founders. He uh, is one of the original schools of magic. There's the original schools of magic. You should take a look at it, uh, look it up. Uh, I'll, make, I'll attach a link uh, to the show notes. Kind of a fundamental approaches to magic almost. Uh, and kind of, kind of where a lot of the foundation kind of breaks out to different archetypes. Um, so it's really the the base level of how magic separates as far as its approach. And Sean O'Brien is the school of pain. Uh, and it is fucking painful. For those, for those that aren't aware, uh, a lot of land destruction, um, suffering, nether voids, uh, chuzoms, uh, your month black, black knight, right? Uh, this is all from the school of O'Brien. Um, so pay homage, uh, and uh, make them all suffer. Uh, but yeah, just thought I'd throw that out there because he's typically on his cast, and we're usually talking about vintage and the legacy, um, primarily legacy, I suppose. Um, but yeah, he's definitely part of the history of what we're talking about today so yeah he's a real deal it's going to be awesome to have him at the players ball and uh, oh yeah so i should shout out the players ball again if you missed that portion um yeah that's our event in chicago that's happening august 26 you can sign up on the eternal central website and uh spots are running out quickly and if you want to read a bunch of outdated blog posts uh i also have a blog uh, understandingancestral.com um very similar to understanding gush 
just drawing cards. Um, yeah, please check that out. It's a really good blog. Uh, if you're interested in the format, it's a good place to kind of get your bearings. And if you're very familiar with the format, there's a lot of great content there for you as well. So highly, highly, highly recommend checking that out. Uh, get some good reading too. Um, so yeah, kudos for that, by the way. Well, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. So cool. Well, I guess that uh, sums up our podcast. Um, also, Eternal Weekend. Don't forget, everyone, it's in Pittsburgh. Um, be in touch. Check the Eternal Central website. Uh, there should be announcements on there as we move forward. And again, the Chicago Players Ball also has information there as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much, Danny, for being on the cast. Uh, it's great. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun talking, uh, vast amount of information, cool to talk about the differences uh, amongst the countries and the growth, and you had a lot of good insight as far as kind of pushing and growing it all locally, or at least good insight for people to take uh, to their local communities that are interested in expanding the format. Um, yeah, so thanks a lot. Well, thanks. Thank you. I, I mean, this feels like every conversation we've had. It's always uh, very, very long and uh, all about 93, 94. Yeah, it probably could have been like a nine-hour podcast. I tried to kind of move through stuff as fast as I could, but it was difficult. Well, you know, this isn't so many insane plays. We don't have seven hours uh, right, so to finish the podcast. Yeah, tr trying to keep it slim. So it, it's hard, though, with the podcast. Like, honestly, there's you get feedback where there's people who are like, oh, I wish it was longer. I just I can't get enough of this. Or it's like, just cut it down to 45 minutes, please. So it's... It's give and take, but uh, I think just getting it out there and letting people pick and choose parts they want to listen to or just go balls into the whole podcast, it's there for you. So, But appreciate you being on here to help get this content out there. I think it'll be good for the format, and uh, it's fun talking. Awesome. Thanks again, man. It was really, really fun talking, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again. All right, everyone. See you next podcast. Uh, Tusk Talk, episode 19. Out. Low rise. 77 severe. L dog. Nem but them blacks. All the players. All the hustlers. I'm talking about a black man having here. You know what I'm saying? It's beginning to look a lot like wood. Follow my every step. Take notes on how I crept. I'm about to go in depth. This is the way I greet my season. Here's my get to rep. I kept to say the least. No, no, it can't cease. So I begin to piece my two and two together. Got no snowy weather. Have to find something to do better. Bet I set some traps, so shut up that. Nonsense about some solid night. I got sick, Clark. If it ain't real, ain't right. I'm like, no matter what the season, forever chill with Smith. I sit my fifth. I chill with Wes and got my reason. So tell me, what did you expect? You thought I'd break my neck to help y'all deck the halls oh no i got other means of celebrating i'm getting blizzard at hojo i got the hoochie waiting i made it through another year can't ask for nothing much more it's outcast for the books i thought you knew so now you know let's go Make no wishes cause I'm hot and folk in the back getting tipsy off the noggin high as hell up the
running first, it's cause it's in the air I hit the bars, I hit the cuts I'm making switches, cause I'm switching from side to side Looking for hoes and snitches I'm wide open on the freeway, my page broke my vibe Cause a ducky is a ducky, 365 It's just another day it worked to me The spirit just ain't in me, grab my pistol in my house See what the junkies gotta give me cause it's life <laughs> Yeah, forever pimping, never slipping That's how it is I'm leaning back, my elbows out the window. Coke rum and endo fills my body. Where's the party? We rode deep, we dipped to underground. Sees a lot of hoes around. I spit my game while waiting countdown. I fight for what three, two. Here comes the one. A new year has begun. P-Funk spark another one. Yeah. 